Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Greetings, Cycling in Alignment listeners. You have returned for another episode, which means the earth is still rotating and you are interested in what I have to say, or more relevantly, interested in what my guests have to say. And today's guest is Dr. Scott Story. Dr. Story has been optimizing the wellness of my family for over two decades. He's a chiropractor, an endocrinologist, and an acupuncturist. He studied Japanese acupuncture, moxibustion, Chinese herbal therapies, visceral manipulation, German biological medicines, craniosacral therapy, and lymph drainage. Believe it or not, this is only a partial list of the modalities that Scott can use to treat his patients. He's continued to study and learn his entire career, and this is what enables him to treat the people who walk through his office door balls to bones, soup to nuts. It is with great gratitude and respect that I welcome Dr. Story to my podcast. Without any further prognostication, please enjoy our discussion. So you taught the paleo diet in, back in 1995, you said? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Because Cordain just came out with it. And so I was teaching um, one on hypercoagulation, as in the yep. thick blood. Yep. So that was the first time I taught that. And then on the last day, I taught the paleo diet. And so mm-hmm. everybody got to eat beets. And I have this great beet recipe on my website for mm-hmm. uh, it, roasted beets with like toasted sesame oil and cumin and all this really tasty. Mm-hmm. And so people are like, I don't like beets. I said, you haven't had my beets. I bet your mother gave you canned beets. And they go, how'd you mm-hmm. know that? Because everybody who got <laughs> canned beets hates baked beets. And I said, this is dish is so good. Mm-hmm. And so I tell my new patients, try a recipe a week, new one. Yep. And I, I always say, try that one. And they're like, I don't know if my family's going to eat it. And so they cook it up and then it's all gone. Mm-hmm. I said, be prepared. You're going to pee red and poop red. And yep. so you don't have to call me on the phone and go, ah, Dr. Scurry, I'm dying. <laughs> I was like, no. Did, I said, did you have beats last night? How'd you know that? I'm like, there you go. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. There you go. Yep. Cool. cool. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. So Dr. Scott Story, thank you so much for making time to join me today on my <laughs> podcast, Cycling in Alignment. Glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me, Colby. You bet. Yeah. What a joy. What an honor. Thank you. Scott has been helping my family take steps forward in wellness and health for over two decades. So you've, you've seen me evolve in my own health practice. You see my wife grow. You've treated our daughter who's now, now she's 20. What I love about your practice is that you have, you're continually studying and learning and growing your own practice in order to serve and better to help your clients step forward into their health practice in many modalities. And that's been really beautiful to be part of and watch and see your own, your own practice grow. So please walk us through your own, your own journey. Tell us about where you're from and how you came to stumble upon health as a, as a wellness practice and a choice in your own life. Fantastic. So I was born in Hartford, Connecticut. My, during the Cold War, my dad was in the Coast Guard and he worked for six months and then he was discharged. And then my parents packed up and moved to Colorado. 
So I basically lived in Colorado my entire life, except for three years of chiropractic school in doom and gloom Portland, Oregon, because <laughs> I discovered seasonal affective disorder is a real true disease, especially if you come from Colorado. If, you, if you're used to 300 days of sunshine and you go to 300 days of gray and rain, yeah. and your plants that grew in Colorado don't ever need watering during the wintertime, you're like, hmm. So I actually made a trellis of lights from my plants and I would study under it because it made me feel better. So I discovered Verlux, but I made my own. So that worked out really well. <laughs> mm -hmm. But what was interesting is that growing up in Colorado, it was a lot of open space back then, you know, 60 years ago. Wow. Mm -hmm. I guess I've been around for a while too. Mm -hmm. So the funny thing was, is that as I looked over my uh, life, you know, for this, this uh, interview, I had a paper route for five years. So from 9 to 14, I rode my bike two miles every day. Mm -hmm. But it was, um, it was kind of a bilateral thing because you have to throw papers with your left hand and your right hand. Mm -hmm. So you actually get to stay in your body and it's kind of cross-crawl. So <laughs> that was interesting. Then when I was 14, on my JCPenney 10-speed with my handlebars rolled back, a friend and I rode from uh, University Park all the way up past Bailey where they had a cabin. Mm -hmm. And this is back when the, there was very little uh, margin on the side of the road and you weren't supposed to drive on the, on the highway. You know, right. they said like no cyclists, but we're right. like, oh, let's just give it a try. So, you know, I think it was a six hours up and coming back was two and a half hours because when you get to that kind of elevation, as you know, when you come downhill, you can go very fast. So yes. two young teenage boys going, we go 55 <laughs> miles an hour, not thinking about road rash or anything like that. So yep. Yep. That was yep. a lot of fun. It was a really nice ride. And you both stayed upright. We both stayed upright. That's yeah. good. <laughs> yeah, which yeah, was, was great. Okay. And then, you know, during this this journey of, of wellness, um, back in the 1980s in college, Ian, Sophia, and myself, we taught aerobics to 200 screaming college kids for two years. And it was so much fun. And how I got into that was is that uh, we used to run six miles a day. Mm. And I thought, she goes, let's go do aerobics. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's for girls, man. I run six miles a day. Uh -huh. And so she says, well, come with me. And I go in there, and I'm the only guy, and there's like 40, 50 women. And so I told all my friends, hey, you know, this is the place to <laughs> it's be. It's a good place to hang out. But I couldn't finish the aerobics class. I was sucking wind, and I was got so sore the next day. So then that's what got me into doing aerobics, okay. that pulse interval training and whole body workout and all that. So that was my beginning of, of that kind of training. Mm -hmm. Then I went on to do uh, some kung fu, mm -hmm. and I wanted to get my black belt. And along the journey was one of my healing experiences because uh, I lacked that kind of uh, killer Bruce Lee spirit. <laughs> But I had fractured six bones in my body with the help of other people. Oh, so boy. first they broke my leg, then three different times, different ribs. And then the last one was a spinning heel kick to my nose that made it stick to the left. So I had to put it back in place. Mm -hmm. And then I decided that, you know, hmm, maybe this is not for me. So I decided I didn't want my second degree black belt. First one was fine. Uh -huh. And so then I took up Tai Chi. Because in Tai Chi, there's no fear of fracture. So between yoga and Tai Chi, those are my main forms of exercise with hiking. And what I found was as my body was fluid, my chi was balanced, my autonomic nervous system became much more parasympathetic, my heart rate dropped, and that was really good. And even though I eat paleo and take my supplements and I meditate and I do all the important things for wellness, um, I just kept getting a little thicker, a little thicker, a little thicker, a little thicker. And I got up to about a, like 195, almost 200 pounds. And mm -hmm. so and, and it doesn't fit with my activity level. And so 
Then I decided that I needed to do something different. So I remember Jack Mullane from back in the day. Yes. He has the longest running TV program in history, even longer than Johnny Carson. <laughs> and so we ordered his 10 DVD set. And each one has Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, his 25-minute workout. Uh-huh. And so what that did is it got us back in the habit. Because the habits are the important things mm-hmm. that make our life uh, rewarding and rich, but also easier. Better habits, mm-hmm. easier life, you know, much more enjoyable. Mm-hmm. So we did Jack Elaine. And after you cycle through all 50, you start over again and over again and over again. So after a couple, three years, you kind of get tired of his jokes and you exercise when he's sitting there <laughs> talking. And then uh, the, the, the uh, pandemic happened. Mm. And so Ian Sevilla was looking in the uh, 5280 and they're talking about the hot new workout in Denver is Palango. Mm-hmm. So Palango is a combination of uh, capoeira martial arts and tango dancing and salsa dancing. So you get this really nice smooth riff going, but you're also moving your whole body. Mm -hmm. So we thought, oh, let's give it a try. So we had a little spare time. So we plugged in Planga Fitness 102, and it's 39 minutes long. Mm -hmm. We made it 22 minutes, and we had to take a break. (laughs) And so basically we watched the last part of it. And then over the span of, I think it took about three weeks to get up to that 39, 40-minute mark. Mm -hmm. And so he does this interesting cycling of three or four exercises, and then he repeats them. And then he repeats them. And they're all to the four count, six count, eight count. And so it's really easy to do, but it's, it challenges the brain mm-hmm. because he's not telling you what to do. You have to watch him. And he motions with his hands where he's going to go and what he's going to do. But you really have to stay really present. It's not one of those checkout workouts where you, know, you can do like aerobics on TV or something. Mm-hmm. So now we're up to four different ones that we do. And it, I'm in the best shape of my life. It's fantastic. And so that was some dog walking and hiking to round everything out and get my nature time. That's mm-hmm. kind of like my, my movement progression throughout my entire life. And so when uh, people come in and they've done like cycling like yourself and, mm-hmm. and other activities, I know exactly where to look at the body because the fulcra changes. Like, you know, some people like to hike and they hike with the sticks. Right. But their center of gravity goes from below their belly button to up in the middle of their chest and their legs become even more unstable. And so every activity mm. has its strengths and weaknesses. And so what I like to do is build upon the strengths and supplement the areas that are a little bit weak and right. balance that out. Right, right, right. And so then we added, thanks to yourself and, and Mari, the Eldoa and the myofascial stretching. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is I've never done movement that so addresses my compensation patterns from doing body work mm. and also exercising in more the frontal plane and lateral. So she's actually helping me with my axial extension mm-hmm. and the opening of my shoulders. And so my body actually is the strongest and healthiest it's ever been. And those last two things really just kind of yeah. took care of the business. Yeah. Okay. So my study of alternative medicine, this is very interesting. This is a kind of a dialogue with the body and trying to figure out which mediums can address which issues in the body. So I graduated from college during the Reagan recession. And so I ended up managing a health food store for almost three years. And when I worked in the health food store, what I noticed was, is that if I just changed somebody's diet and got them to take some supplements, we could get a vast change in their quality of life and their wellness. Some of their symptoms would go away, some would lessen. And so it was really profound, but I was working 80 hours a week and it was just really a tense time. And so Ian Sophia's cousin came through town and he adjusted my middle back. And the sound was, I think it registered in Golden, you know, with the earthquake center. It was so loud. And so I'm sitting there and I get up and I'm like, I'm not in pain anymore. And all the tension between my shoulder blades was gone. Mm. So I walked up front and I said to my wife, he said, I know what I want to do for the rest of my life. 
And she's thinking, oh, he's going to want to move to New York and be a stockbroker because that was one of my degrees I got from my, uh, my education. Mm -hmm. And I said, no, I want to be a chiropractor. She's like, no, really, what do you want to do? She goes, I want to be, I said, I want to be a chiropractor. She says, I'm not moving to Des Moines, Iowa. You have to find somewhere else to go. Because <laughs> all the nine chiropractors that were in her family all went to uh, Palmer Chiropractic. She had nine chiropractors in her family. Yeah, yeah. Starting with her grandfather. He was the first. Wow. Yeah. And then some of their... Uh, uh, cousins and aunts and uncles, everybody started going to chiropractic school because they saw the power of the adjustment and mm -hmm. what it could do to bring some some blood flow, some nerve force back into the body, help the posture, speed up the healing process. Mm -hmm. So then I got to chiropractic. And what was interesting is that I decided that it would take one seminar a month for my entire career. So it's uh, four academic years, but if you go straight, you can do it in three. Mm -hmm. So in those three years, I took 36 seminars. Because I wanted to graduate with more education and more skill than somebody who'd been practicing for like 10 years. Mm -hmm. And so that was really a lot of fun. And so then I learned applied kinesiology. Mm -hmm. And then clinical kinesiology actually started with Alan Beardall in Portland, Oregon. And so that's a different type of muscle testing and asking the body different questions. Then after that, I realized that each modality that I had learned only had a sphere of influence on a certain part of the body. Mm -hmm. And that I needed to branch out even more. Mm -hmm. So then I studied Japanese acupuncture, and then I got licensed in acupuncture. And then after that, our office burned down, and uh, I developed what chronic fatigue was that I had never experienced but I had heard of. So for two years, uh, we basically worked seven days a week. Mm -hmm. I worked three days a week, clean out the office, do construction, go back, go forth. So at the end of two years, I basically could barely make it through the workday, and there was no reason for it. I ate the same diet. I took the supplements, but I burned my adrenals out. So then Ian found for me uh, an endocrinology certification program, naturopathic endocrinologist. So I took the program, took the test, and then uh, started basically healing my body. And so when the test came up, when I, he, uh, Dr. Borkin showed us a, a hormone evaluation, he cr crossed my name out and he goes, there's someone in the room who looks 72 years old, oh. but he's really only 40. And wow. I went, whoa, that's not good. Mm. So then I started doing some... Uh, prescription hormone creams that I can make and some uh, different powders. And I was able to turn that around with everything else that we'll talk about today. Mm. And now at 60, I look like I'm about 40. And so I, I like being the 60 looking 40 versus the other guy. Agreed. Yeah. 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 Then we you know we branched out. We learned some uh, cranial sacral, uh, did some functional and biological medicine. Uh, it's a German medicine to work with homeopathics to bring balance to your body. Mm -hmm. uh, Visceral manipulation. I took so much visceral manipulation, like 600 hours. I was going to actually start teaching, but then there was a, a shift in how the organization was run, and I mm -hmm. couldn't really jive with it. So I decided I'd go off and study lymph drainage. So each medicine deals with the body in a different way. So in chiropractic school, you learn the muscles, the bones, the nerves, and the whole external part in the brain, but you kind of cursorily go through the organs. Mm -hmm. So in visceral manipulation, you get to learn the specific, you know, specifics of the organ and what each one feels like. Because mm. each organ is covered with fascia. Yep. And it gives it a form and a function. And then you can feel that organ. And if there's any restriction, it limits the amount of motion that can go through that part of the body and you mm -hmm. have to walk around it. And so one time we were in Hawaii when there's a lot of people, you know, wearing Speedos and whatnot. And so I sat there with a little checklist and I went, okay, that person's walking around the right kidney. And that yeah. person is their colon. Mm. That person's got a lung restriction. And you can watch how the person mm. walks and they walk around that area of the body. Mm -hmm. 
And then everybody needs lymph drainage because if 100% of your blood goes out through an artery, 90% of the fluids come back through the venous system, 10% come back through the lymphatic. So when the fluid leaks out, it nourishes the cells, it uh, brings oxygen in, and then the lymph carries away the waste products. So most of the system is your your trash can basically, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah. And so most people, their trash can is overflowing, right? And uh, their trash pickup doesn't come by as often as they would like. Mm-hmm. And so we spend a lot of time working with that on every treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, I branched out to do uh, laser, cold laser or chonia, and the reason is is that it can stimulate your mitochondria. So if I want to speed up your healing process, or in the case of like with the pandemic and people being so stressed out, you see it's affecting their brain function. Mm-hmm. You can't function at this level of stress and maintain wellness. And so part of my practice is to get people to get their brain to calm down. Mm -hmm. And then we do the PEMF, the pulsed electromagnetic frequency device. That actually comes more from Germany and that's specific wavelengths designed to treat different pathology in the body and give your body the energy it needs so that it can heal again. Mm. And so whether it's chronic inflammation or limb stagnation, not enough oxygen, acute injury, there's different programs that just speed up the healing of that part of the body. Mm And then we finish off with rock blade and rock tape. And so what's interesting is that the rock blade, because it has such a fine edge, it separates the skin from the underlying fascia, the superficial and deep fascia, Mm -hmm. and then muscle, ligament, tendon, bone, organ. So if I can use that gently to open up the entire fascial system, the matrix, then I can go uh, sink deeper into the tissue with less effort. Mm -hmm. Because when I first learned it, when you did deep tissue work, you got to use your finger, you got to use your forearm, your elbow. But the surface area is so large, it takes a lot of pressure Mm -hmm. and you stimulate a lot of pain receptors. And so there's a lot of pushback. Mm -hmm. And so I don't get that with the rock blade anymore. Interesting. And then once I treat somebody, I tape them up. And what the tape does is it lifts the skin up just a little bit Mm -hmm. to improve that fluid exchange. And then what it does is it retrains the brain. So if... You've had an injury, and then what happens is that the brain smudges it out. It goes, I don't want to take a look at that left shoulder because it's occupying too much space on my, mm-hmm. in my brain. Mm-hmm. So you basically just tune it out. So if you think about every injury you've ever had, you've got you know, your ankle, your hip, your back, your neck, your shoulder, your wrist, if you sprained it. And so all these areas aren't being represented accurately. You get kind of this morphed map of how you see yourself. It's like a, your proprioceptive system has been shut down in that yep. area because the brain's it's healing. But also, that's isn't that that's part of the protective mechanism, so yep. you don't overuse that area. If you yeah. can't really feel it, you can't do too much with it. Correct, exactly. But yeah. of course, in the Western mindset, the, the Yang mind, if the athlete's mind is like, "But I have to," mm-hmm. so they keep yep. doing, 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 trying to smash through that vague, vague proprioceptive wall. Yeah, and it encourages uh, abnormal biomechanics. Yes, because that's if, how you start to yep. walk, yep. work around that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. and that's yeah. that whole thing around somatics and Feldenkrais is you need. Mm-hmm proprioceptive training to bring your body back to its uh, original, most effective range of motion, mm-hmm. whether it's flexing and extending, laterally flexing or rotation, that we all have an adaptation. So that's what we've just, we've just described, the origin of a compensation pattern. Yeah, right? yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. And then let's see. Oh, and then uh, Colby and I are going to be taking a class in a few weeks, global postural stretching. I'm so excited yeah, for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So three days, 90 stretches. 
Uh, Epsom salt bath will be in order and some natural anti-inflammatories. And yeah. Nikki Costello, the Eldoa instructor you just referenced, yeah. she's also taking the class with us. Yes. That'll yep. be exciting. It's going to be very fun. Yeah. I was, And see, this is the thing is that when I take a new concept in like lymph drainage or visceral manipulation, I have to fit it in with everything that I've already learned. So it, I had sources me to step back. Yes. And see what my previous work did and how it's modified with the newest adjunct. So I think this new stretching is going to be very exciting. It's a continual process of, yeah. process of refinement and growth. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 And that's the beauty of the work that we do is, mm -hmm. you know, basically whether it's, you know, personal coaching and training and bike fitting, it's like it, everything we can do to help somebody function better raises the, their enjoyment of their life, mm -hmm. the things that they can do. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Isn't it rewarding? Yeah. It's amazing work. I, I love it. Um, just it's the type of work that for me, no matter how tired I am or how much work I put out, output in one day, I just feel that, that there, it's so rewarding to help someone with their life that I feel like there's always another reservoir of energy to tap into. And that reservoir is really outside of myself to a degree because I'm, I'm, I'm accessing the energy of, well, love to help other people to lift their yeah. level. And that just travels through me. So then I don't have to tap into myself, my own reserves. Yeah. I'm, I'm using what's out there and offering it up to someone else to help them be better. Yeah. Yeah. I saw a new patient yesterday and she has left knee pain and a Baker's cyst, a swelling in the joint capsule in the back of the knee. Mm. And it's been going on for, uh, since March and she, with the, uh, uh, lockdown, basically, she started running and walking more. Mm. But what happened was, and then this is when somebody comes in, and we'll talk about this in a little while, I see if their brain is working, if they can actually give me a strong, intact muscle to do testing. And if every muscle in their body is weak, the brain and the body, uh, they've kind of had a blue circuit, yeah. and we need to reset it. Mm -hmm. So when we reset it, and then the muscles are strong, that means that they've got good motor control. But when the arm is weak, that means, and I saw this during the whole COVID time, is people who run and lift weights and, and do different kinds of exercise, they all had emergencies of injuries with activities they normally did for a normal duration and intensity. And they all had the weak muscle because when they're walking, rather than getting that specific motor control, the body wobbles a little bit. And with that wobbling, you get an irritation of the joint capsule, the mm -hmm. ligament, you yep. strain the muscle, the tendon. And so basically we turned her brain back on, but even when we got her brain working, then the left leg was not attached. Mm. And so then we figured out what we need to do. We turned all the muscles on yep. and then we taped her up. And when she got up, she realized that she had disconnected from her entire left leg and mm -hmm. she didn't trust it. And so when she stood up, I said, now I want you to walk mindfully and purposefully and really feel what your left leg says to you so that it can come back in and be part of your body mm. and then she scooted up the stairs with a big smile on her face and she just said thank you very much yeah 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 awesome yeah so you come in what do i do um first i look at you i look at your skin color is it ash and gray is it like nice and rosy mm -hmm. and over the last several months more people come in ash and gray from stress mm. then i look at your posture how are you walking when you come in the office, you know, do you kind of list to the left or the right? Or does one foot kind of, you do that kind of like short step, big step, depending on what's happening in the pelvis and the lower extremities. Then I look at your, I, I listen to your voice. How does your voice sound? Does it sound really wispy and it's like hard to hear you talk? Or is it really robust? Or because mm. it, it kind of tells me where the person's chi is and also mm. what's going on in their life. And then when I, when I start to work with them, I smell them. 
because basically a healthy body smells healthy, but in Chinese medicine, there's five elements. And so, you know, do they smell sweet, sour, salty? It's like, kind of like you get all these different flavors. But when you start doing the lymph drainage and you start treating somebody, you could actually smell what's coming out of their skin. Yeah. 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 And, and so when you sell a certain, if you, if you're picking up like a sweet odor, is that indicative of them consuming too many sweet foods or is that their body just happens to be processing that in particular that particular energy or they're dominant in that energy or they're deficient or what how do you interpret that well so sweet is the the flavor of uh, late summer it's a spleen stomach so like when you go to farmer's market and like everything's in season that's late summer and pears, so peaches pears peaches and so people like they'll eat more fruit and they'll have more of a sweet smell mm. but some intrinsic um odor is always with the body so if you're a spleen stomach person you got the sweet smell Year round, um, yeah, year round. Yeah. If you're okay. the lung, large intestine, you've got this accurate putrid kind of smell. Yep, that's that. So you basically, you can use it to kind of figure out a person's constitution, mm -hmm. and then that modifies uh, acupuncture and herbs and things that I do. Right, right. To put them more into balance. Yes, yes. Yeah. And then when they sit in front of me, I actually put my hands on their body, and I want to feel uh, like when I put my hand on the head, because all the fascia is interrelated in the body, I can feel where the lesion is. So where's the first pole? Let's say it's in the middle of the neck. So then I touch that, and then I look for the other one. And so it's like stacking mm -hmm. in the body. So then it might go to their um, spleen. So then I touch their spleen, and then I look, and it might go to their right SI joint. So you can literally go through and find a causal chain. Yep. That, so if you treat the hip first, then the spleen might go away, or it's much less prominent. And you right. do that, and then the, the neck might heal itself, or it needs a little intervention. So you yeah. can actually map a pathway of fascia to figure out what the person really needs. So you might say you're looking for the mother. Yeah. Right? Is yeah. that a fair way to say it? Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. So I had the opportunity to take a class a few months ago. It was online. Normally it would be in person, but it was a Thomas Myers anatomy trains class and it was a live dissection and it was just fascinating. And, and relating to your point about the fascia and in particular about how the organs are enveloped in fascia um, during this particular dissection, we saw a woman whose liver had some fascial connections, some lines of fascia directly from the organ to the diaphragm. Yep. And they pointed that out immediately and said, this is not something you'll find in an anatomy textbook. Like there's no textbook that shows you a fascial, a line of fascia, like a band of fascia yeah. was like as thick as a pinky finger yeah, from yeah. the liver to the diaphragm. Yep. But there it was plain as day. We could see it. We cut it with a knife to free the liver from the diaphragm. Yeah. And everyone asked, well, why is this here? What is, what causes this anomaly? And the dissector said, well, you know, he's been doing this for three and a half decades or whatever. He said, in my opinion, it's really hard to tell. Of course, you don't know. We're, we're making some suppositions about how this person lived their life and what happened but generally speaking if an organ is challenged fascia will grow in any part of the body that is yeah. challenged to find stability yeah but it's not just mechanical stability it's also energetic stability or you might say um, metabolic stability so if the liver is being challenged all the time that fascial band is growing there to support the liver yeah. not just from physically moving but to give it some energetic or metabolic support so he said I, my suspicion is that this person was taking prescription drugs for a long period of time and that was challenging their liver. Yeah. And that's what, and so when people come to me as a, for a fit and we see fascial restrictions, sometimes I, I'm still on this journey. I'm learning about this kind of stuff, but it's like, why do we see certain restrictions in their movement pattern on the bike? There are lots of possible explanations, right? Would you yeah. agree with that? Yeah. And then a lot of it comes from the inside. So all of us have visceral restrictions. And right. so the fascia 
So form follows function and function follows form. Mm. So if I change the way you move and the structure of your body, then its function is going to change. Yes. And if we change the function, then the form changes. And so it's true musculoskeletally, but it's also true with the organs. Mm. And so Jean-Pierre Barral, he's the visceral manipulation uh, originator. He's a French osteopath. He actually discovered it because he was working as a PT and in a place where there were a lot of old miners and people that were at war and they had like mustard gas exposure and whatnot. And he would feel these lines of tension and he would note them. And then when they would do the dissection with the autopsy, mm-hmm. they'd actually find the fascial lines in there. Yep. So you can actually pick up on them just by putting your hands on the body mm-hmm. and just like listening because mm-hmm. the body says, I got a problem over here and I'm just looking for somebody who can find it. And it has the tools in the tool bag to fix it mm. so that it can free them up. Mm. And that brings me to such a beautiful concept that I've been sharing with a lot of my athletes recently, which is just that it's amazing to me how many people this isn't intuitive for. And and I don't say that with any, you know, judgment. I It took me a long time to learn this lesson myself, I think. But for some reason in the Western athletic world, we don't have this as a supposition. And it's something that if I could give it as a gift to all my athletes as a level of understanding, I would just push a button and make them understand it or help them understand it. But the body is the perfect healing machine. So when you see the body and you, you can discern these fascial attachments or see these movement patterns, you can quickly understand that it is how the body is. It's how it's responded to the life load. It's been given the stress load, the, the physical load, the dietary load, the, the, whatever other load we've imposed on it, the parasympathetic sympathetic balance or imbalance, the yang activities we do, or maybe too much yin, depending on COVID and the time of year or whatever you've got going on. Right. And you see those layers, just as you were saying, you can peel back those layers and try to find the mother, the root cause of something, not the symptom. And then you understand the body actually wants to exist in a, in a perfect state. It is trying to heal itself constantly. But these fascial lines, as an example, are these fascial, is that the right word? Yeah. Fascial. Well, it's kind of like um, fascia, whether you do surgery or you have trauma, it creates adhesions. Yes. And so there's fibroblasts going around your body looking for an area where there's been a trauma. And that area, when it secretes uh, its uh, cytokines, what happens is all the fibroblasts in the body migrate to that area. Mm-hmm. And f- when the body makes fascial adhesions, what happens is it's like a 360-degree spider web. Yes. And when I work with people, you start to really like uh, soften them mm-hmm. so that they're less problematic, cause less problems in other parts of the body. Mm-hmm. But then their mission, their job is to like move into that area and teach that area how to remold the fascia. Because fascia is always uh, responding to how you work out. To load. Yeah, yeah. to load. And uh, duration, duration, intensity. Yeah, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. Right. And whether you're aerobic, anaerobic. That's you know. why. So one of the most, to help... I think a lot of people maybe conceptually are still getting their heads wrapped around what fascia is. I I Mm -hmm. explain this to a lot of my clients in fit sessions. And one of the most, I think, easy to understand examples is a dowager's hump. So a dowager's hump is you see someone who's in their sixth, seventh decade of life and the head is carried forward of the rib cage and to such a degree that the upper part of their back, their thoracic spine or the lower or the cervical spine actually starts to look a bit like the neck of a buzzard and it begins to get this sort of lump at the top of the shoulders behind back the posterior aspect of the shoulder. So 
above the shoulders and towards the, the bottom of the neck. And it gets this lump that grows. And that lump is made of fascia. That That's the body modeling. It's basically making a little suspension bridge to help the weight of the head mm-hmm. as the head, the head should be stacked over the spine. That's how you're going to walk through life with stability and posture, which is by definition, the ability to respond to any load instantaneously with ideal alignment. So when the head is carried forward of the rib cage and of the pelvis, that's a lot of weight that the body wasn't mechanically engineered to carry that weight forward of the, the center line like that. So it's moving your center of gravity forward. It's got to respond by, by building a structure. So it literally builds a suspension bridge to hold the head so it doesn't fall off and land on the ground. That's correct. And the problem with the damage stuff, it shows up also um, in people that do prednisone. Because basically when you do prednisone, you digest yourself. It's like too much cortisol in a short period of time. Mm-hmm. And the body starts to lose its structure. It can't hold itself up. So the shoulders round to the front. Yep. The head goes to the front. And yep. you get that big glob of fat back there in fascia. Yep. And it can be reversed. But they've done studies. And for every inch, your ears go anterior over your shoulder chromal yep. process where they should be in neutral. Mm-hmm. That it shortens your life by about five years. Because it yep. chokes off the blood supply to the brain yep. and also puts pressure on the cranial nerves mm-hmm. and the cervical nerves. And so you're more likely to have like carpal tunnel and a variety of other, you know, loss of strength in your hands, et cetera, mm-hmm. because of the occlusion of the neck muscles, because they're they're made to function in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And when you start bringing that head forward, my job is really to get it back and then, you know, have people like, you know, Nikki teach people Eldoa and with the yes. axial extension to bring your body back yep. to optimal alignment. Yeah. And yeah. so part of it is, is the work I do opens up the possibility, mm. but then the person has to change how they live their life and their habits. And that's one of my concerns with, I see all these cyclists, especially the older ones, yes. because of their posture, you know, you get the rounding of the shoulders, the, the collapsing of the clavicles, yes. the upper lung, mm. you know, you get that nice big curve and you jack up the suboccipital area and oh. you create chronic tension. But let's add weight to it. Let's, yeah. let's yeah. put a helmet on let's top of your a helmet yeah, and right. do it for hours a day yeah. where you're... Yeah. You're craning forward yeah, yeah, like the yeah, like a buzzard yeah. neck, and then you're you're verticalizing the face while yeah, your torso yeah. is at 45, 30 yeah. degrees. I call that Ichabod crane posture. Yeah, yeah, I hate to say it, audience, but cycling does not help this. It makes it worse. So if you want a really simple test, just stand against a straight wall, put your heels against the wall, your butt against the wall, and is it comfortable for you to extend your spine and lift the crown of the head and? Put the back of your head against that wall. And keep your head level. Keep a lot level. of people, they go way back and they, they hyperextend it just to say, I can touch the wall. And then I bring their chin down and their head comes up. Yes. And so, I said, so that's their homework is to stand up against the wall every day up. Yep. for just like five minutes and breathe mm-hmm. and just feel that length that comes into the spine. Yes. Yeah. Yes. On each exhale, your yeah. spine should grow and get yeah. taller. Yeah. So if your chin is pointing up when you do that exercise, you're, you're kind of cheating a little bit. I keep your chin down. Yeah. Yeah, And see, that's what brings you to the whole thing about cross-training is that mm. every exercise has its strength but creates other weaknesses. So you have to round out. So when you look at cycling, it's like, okay, I need to create length in the spine, yes. bring the shoulders back, you know, lengthen my psoas, which is like super tight. And so mm-hmm. this is uh, just a compensation pattern. But you can look at every movement and figure out which activities can bring balance and strength to that weakness. Every sport has its sport-specific yeah, compensation yeah, yeah, patterns. Yeah. I would argue that cycling probably has more than most other sports or many other sports i'll say well the reason i would say is because the duration and intensity Mm. first i would like to ask all cyclists smile while you're cycling i've never (laughs) seen so many people grimacing and frowning (laughs) and with their face and and i'm like turning the pedal in anger 
please. Yeah, you're turning pale in anger. And what that does is it breaks the, the, the hormones dysregulate just from your facial expression. So mm. give me a little smile, <laughs> relax the face, and really enjoy the writing. Because when you grimace like that, you're not really enjoying it. You're not in the flow. You're saying we should be grateful for the fact that we have this affluent ability to go exercise yeah. uh, with free will and yeah. ride bikes that cost more than many people's cars. We, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And just, just, we can just do it whenever we want and go enjoy nature and yeah. connect with the body. Well, the other morning we were coming back from Jamestown to our house, which is only 10 minute drive. Mm-hmm. We counted 60 cyclists. Yep. And um, some of them were riding side by side, which by law they're not supposed to do. Yeah. And they have been getting tickets lately, which I think is good for the community because it keeps the drivers honest and the riders honest. So if we can coexist in a harmonious, synergistic way, then it, peace, love, hope, it all works out. <laughs> so just so you know, uh, Jamestown is a really popular local route up a canyon called Left Hand Canyon. And we had some 500-year floods here uh, in 2013, and that canyon got totally smoked a lot of the road got washed away and it it needed some work anyway and it took them about what two and a half years for them to completely redo the canyon from the bottom of the canyon of left hand canyon they they repaved all the road all the way up to jamestown and they added a big fat bike lane in the whip and now it is it's like interval alley people it's just the most beautiful canyon they regraded the road they've got perfect pavement yep and it's nice and flowy and so it is a really idyllic riding area but uh, and it's not super heavily trafficked with auto traffic, no, so, no. which also makes it nice. Yes, but, yeah. very much so. So, yep. so, you know, evaluate the posture. Um, I look at the lymph drainage. So the lymph drains right behind the clavicle where the muscle comes down the neck, the sternocleidomastoideus. Mm-hmm. And so I can actually palpate where the lymph turns back into the, uh, the blood supply. And that is kind of like the starting point. And then what I'll do is I'll, I'll look for thoracolumbar rotation, and then I'll just go in and drain the lymph. And the range of motion usually doubles because mm. this is such an important part. It's highly innervated in the nervous system. And it's important that the blood and the lymph return to the heart so that we can live a long life. But again, when the, when the arms crush in, mm-hmm. you've got the, the, you know, you're doing that aerodynamic speeding down the road. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, wow, that looks really good. But you're going to have to spend equal time doing the other. So if you <laughs> see a lot of cyclists walking around Boulder with their arms back and their chest out and their head back, that they're just trying to counterbalance the, the <laughs> activities that come with the sport hopefully we see cyclists everywhere doing that yes yeah yeah so then we look at your temperature and your pulse ox that actually came about because of covid you know so I check people's temperature and right my patients and myself we tend to run a little cooler you know so like 98.4 and 98.3 and it's not a hypothyroid thing it's just more that our metabolisms are we're, we we want to be well we want to be healthy and so if the average temperature is 98.6 and most of americans are unhealthy then that tells me it's a little too hot mm. and then also if uh your pulse rate is supposed to be 72 then really it should be 65 or 60 and so mm. most of my patients have you know nice lower heart rate lower blood pressure lower temperature mm. and they breathe deeper so a little more, a little more parasympathetic, yeah, 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 dominant during a nice relaxing session with Dr. Story. Yep. Yeah, definitely. So after we do that and we assess and, you know, only one of my patients can't quite keep their pulse ox up and, but it's because they, they shallow breathe and they have a lot of stress. Mm-hmm. I mean, the other day I checked mine, it was a hundred. Mm. I'm like, Oh nice. yeah, that doesn't happen very often. Normally mm-hmm. I'm about 98. 98. Yeah. 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 Then we look at the cranial nerves. So we use the muscle testing to look at the 12 cranial nerves and the pelvic nerves. Now, they all develop when you're in the womb. Mm-hmm. And so that way, when you're born, you can suckle, you can digest, and you can eliminate. Mm-hmm. So everything's supposed to work that way. 
once you're born, your right brain kicks in for the first two years and you develop spatial awareness and kind of like look at forms and colors and things like that. Then at the almighty two, you learn how to say no and the left <laughs> brain kicks in. And so we go through when we look at the 12 cranial nerves and there's a specific test for each cranial nerve and then the pelvic nerves. And then we look at the right brain. We have people hum like row, row. <laughs> and then also we do multiplication for the left brain. And wherever the arm goes weak, then we just make a note. And during this whole COVID lockdown stressful thing, a lot of people were coming in and first their arm was weak. And then so the bread, there'd been that disconnect, mm -hmm. you know, that circuit breaker blown. Then once that works, then we can go through and find out. And a lot of ocular stress, a lot of jaw stress, yeah. a lot of digestive problems. Mm -hmm. And so all these cranial nerves, we figure out which one is the most important. And then we give it the laser treatment that it wants. And then all of a sudden, all the 12 cranial nerves kick in, the pelvic nerves are working, the right brain, left brain are interfacing and people just start to feel better. It's like you have more resources. Yeah. And it, if, if your eyes are tired, just because the optic nerve in that part of the brain is tired and the muscles are tired, then you're, it's like uh, driving around with your emergency brake on. You're going to spend a lot more mental energy doing your daily task and not know why you're so tired at the end of the day. Yep, yep. just sort of seeing, it's like you're ice skating uphill all day yeah. trying yeah. to get stuff done. Yep. So why would people's ocular nerves be tired, Scott, during COVID? I mean, I can't imagine Gee, too much computer time oh, and wait, too much what? TV and news. Whoa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what does computer time do to our ocular nerve that's suboptimal? Well, one is um, you're looking at the same distance. And so if you look at the same distance all the time and you're just doing short movements, there's six muscles in the eye mm -hmm. that move the eye function. And so basically, if you're looking at the same place, those muscles start to get really tight. The eyeball gets tight. And but so the other ones start to gotten, become atrophied, right? Uh, if you're always... Yeah. So the yeah. eyeball actually gets hard because mm. when the muscles are, lack movement, yeah. then what happens is when the muscles get hard, the eyeball loses its elasticity mm. because it's a fluid-filled sphere. That doesn't sound good. No, it's not good. Okay. And so then the last test I do with the eyes is I have somebody watch a pencil as I bring it in and they should be able to converge yeah. and you need the convergence. But you know, from behavioral optometry, what they've found is that when people get stressed out, their eyes become... You, you become looking at your peripheral. So you're kind of like a deer or like my great Pyrenees dog. They basically <laughs> assess movement because that's what they need to survive. Or like Sid, that yeah, yeah. sloth in Ice Age. His eyes are yeah. gone out yeah. to the side. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. so what we do is I have them do pencil push-ups. We laser and then also mm -hmm. I can manipulate the eyeballs to restore the elasticity. And then I give them some exercises to do. And then they feel much better and they're not so tired after spending hours on the computer. So if you're on the computer every once in a while, take a break and look outside and look at a tree or a bird or something. Then come back to your work. And then mm -hmm. so you want to do that close far, you know, uh, it's like exercising the eye muscles. Uh-huh. And then what about eye rolling? Is that something Yeah, you can do eye rolling. Lines? And then yeah. also you can palm the eyes where you take your palm of your hand. And eyes cannot have uh, contacts in when you do this. But you can mm -hmm. put the palm on your uh, eye. And then I have people do uh, an infinity sign uh -huh. a few times, nice and slow. Yep. And then they go backwards. Yep. And then we do the number eight several times and backwards. And in those nonlinear um, diagonal movements mm -hmm. actually get the eye muscles to stretch out. And also you're making your eyeball subpole again. So... In the exercise world, we're dominant by sagittal plane movement. And in the eyeball world, we're dominated by small, I guess it'd be lateral and yeah, sagittal yeah, plane yeah, movement yeah. basically also. So diagonal movement is the key to everything? That's <laughs> that it, first it, sweeping statement. Uh, well, actually. <laughs> or rotational. 
think, diagonal. I think rotational, diagonal, non. Uh, so some people used to teach it, you just go left, right, up, down. Mm. But what I found is it doesn't massage the eyeball itself. So by doing that nonlinear curving <laughs> motion, yeah, okay. yeah, what happens is you basically, you massage the eye in different uh, vectors, different directions, and also you soften the muscles. Yeah, which is kind of like the WEC method, like more spiral movement, mm -hmm. more on an unstable base like a BOSU ball and more yep. rotational. Yep. He's got this flowy kind of component to his exercise programs. Interesting. And, and, and so you get you get the proprioception from the feet, the mm. proprioception from the eighth cranial nerve in mm -hmm. your brain, just behind your ears. And then also the the motion in the body, what's interesting, and this is why the rock blade is so important, is that the more there's more nerves between your skin, your superficial and deep fascia and the underlying tissue mm -hmm. than there is like in your joints and in mm -hmm. other parts of your body. They used to think it was joints and muscle nerves, Golgi tendon organs and fancy names like that, Parsenian right. corpuscles. Right. But basically it, it comes down to you want to have fluid fascia, you want your skin to be able to move. And in those nonlinear movements, your brain also has to fire in a way that it normally doesn't when you just do two-dimensional like flexion, extension, lateral flexion, yep. rotation. Yeah. Yep. Yep. But when you combine all three planes, you get a much better response. Yeah. Cool. Very cool. So, you know, I, I assess the tonicity of the body, the, how's the diaphragm working? Because it's so important to get that maximum, you know, vital capacity. Mm -hmm. So what I do is I have the person take a breath and mostly new patients, especially they go, <gasps> yep. <gasps> and what they're doing is they're breathing with their upper lungs, but nothing comes through the diaphragm into the belly. So the chest expands yes. and the collarbones will yep. pull up. They'll use their scalenes or their exactly. neck muscles to yep. lift the uh -huh. chest. Yeah, and right. the levator scapula. And those are the people that come in with chronic neck pain. Yep. Because imagine if 12 times every hour you're, or every minute, you're raising your shoulders up with your neck muscles. Yep. I, they, they get tired. It's like sitting around and doing barbell curls all day long with like, you know, about 10 pound weights. <laughs> and pretty soon your arms are going to be really smoked. big in the front. They're yep. going to be smoked. And yeah, you're going to be having a lot of pain. So we breathe about 25,000 times a day, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 It's a lot of reps. It's a lot of reps. Yeah. <laughs> and so basically, I'll go in and release the diaphragm mm. uh, with a visceral manipulation technique where I move the liver and the stomach. And you can see, I try to get all the organs to glide over each other. And then the person takes a breath in and all their lower ribs, they extend anteriorly, but they also go laterally and posterior. So they get that full deep breath in, oxygen level goes up. But the important thing with deep breathing is also it massages all the organs. Yes. All your organs are stuck together like two pieces of glass with some water in between. And they're designed to glide over each other. That's why the three-planar motion is so important because mm -hmm. you want to get all of the rotation, flexion, extension, lateral flexion happening because yep. organ function can improve 10, 20, 50% with a visceral manipulation and then deep breathing. And then just, also, yeah. Just by letting them move and glide yeah. over yeah. each other. Yeah. 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 Cycling also is a sport that doesn't really inherently have a lot of that happening i mean if you're if you're breathing diaphragmatically and deeply on the bike that will help that mm -hmm. but there's not the and there's some rotation happening when you're standing out of the saddle and you're pulling on the bars that's a pull pattern particularly since you're lunging at the same time if you have really good form on the bike you're probably moving the organs less so then that speaks to that need again to have an off the bike mm -hmm. movement yep program that complements that cycling and, and offsets yep. those compensation patterns that's very correct mm. And then, you know, we'll basically uh, percuss the spine uh, to, to stimulate that vertebral movement, move the ribs so that everybody has a chance to uh, have a new relationship with themselves and their body. Mm -hmm. and so basically people just walk out and they, 
you feel like you're supposed to feel. We're all designed to be functional and strong and fluid, but how we grow up, how we're brought into the world, how we learn to, to ride bikes and exercise, we didn't get the manual on efficient movement. I mean, I, I didn't mm. take Aldoa classes and do myofascial stretching you know, in kindergarten or first grade. It wasn't mm. important when I played football and wrestling. You know, mm. Basically, it was your old school, You know, maybe a little bit of stretching, get right to it, You know, do a mm. little warm up, and that was it. Yeah, you know, on that, like briefly on that topic, like remember when you used to get a VCR in the 80s or whatever, or like a Walkman, what did you do? You you unpacked your new fancy sparkly electronic device from the packaging, and then you read the manual because that was before the internet. Yep, yep. And now the definition of a good electronic device is you don't need a manual. The user interface is sufficient to where it just walks you. You basically just start pushing stuff yeah. impatiently. Yeah. And then some sort of pop-up window appears, or it's really obvious from the buttons, or some sort of user wizard helps and appears and helps walk you through how to set up your your nest or whatever yep. internet of crap you just bought and installed in your house to oversimplify to overcomplicate something like a thermostat but we didn't get a user's a user's manual with our body when yep. we were born yep so it, it didn't come with the dietary instructions right sleep pattern posture you know i mean back in the day we the only athletic shoes we had were Converse, and that was considered the good shoe. And so you're supposed to run in Converse? No, no. It's the, irony no being, the irony being compared yeah. to Hoka's and some of the other shoes out yeah, there that yeah. are complete train wrecks now, Converse yeah. actually aren't bad. You can do a lot worse. Yeah. But yes. True. Right. Yes. It's not an athletic shoe. It's a fashion shoe yeah. that just happened to be zero drop yeah. and kind of pliable mm -hmm. and didn't have too much heel support and arch support and yeah. six inches of foam and all that crap. But anyway, yep. please continue. I yep. jumped in. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> so then we do muscle testing to see, you know, which vertebra out and then just go through. And I do treat everybody's digestive tract when they're laying supine on the table. And the reason is, is that stress shows up um, as tension in the whole digestive tract, ruled by your vagus nerve, your 10th cranial nerve, except for the last part of the large intestine, which is ruled by the pelvic plexi. What happens is when you're stressed out, all the blood leaves the viscera and it goes out to your extremities and your brain and you go into a catabolic process that raises your glucose level. Mm -hmm. And the problem with that is you're going to become hyperglycemic, also known as diabetic, mm -hmm. and you're going to stimulate uh, the the deposition of adipose, basically you're going to become overweight, like two-thirds of Americans, mm -hmm. and you become obese, which contains one-third of those Americans. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it deals with diet, but also stress. And so if you're chronically stressed and you're eating too many carbs, you're basically just going to pack on the fat and your blood sugar is going to go up. And you'd be surprised mm -hmm. how many people, when they do their blood work, their protein level is low and their glucose is high. And what that does is it says that basically you're undergoing gluconeogenesis. You're taking that delicious grass-fed organic steak that you ate, and you're turning it into sugar rather than healing your connective tissue from exercise. Which is an unfortunate outcome of that amazing grass-fed steak you just ate, but also a testament to what the body can do yeah. with the fuel you give it if you aren't looking after yourself and maintaining yeah. healthy level, healthy baseline health levels. Yeah. Yeah. That was a horribly worded sentence, but I think you got what I was saying. Yes. So... So when I work on the stomach and I work on yep. the small intestine and the large intestine, what happens is if somebody's eating gluten, 
and they're under stress, you're irritating the intestinal lining from the inside, but you're also causing a spasm in the smooth muscle. Mm. And it's got a whole different feel to it. Once you go through and improve the elasticity of the stomach so they can make more hydrochloric acid and they can churn that food with the acid and break it down. And then it moves into the small intestine and the small intestine starts to churn and metabolize it. And then you start to absorb some fluid and some, you know, Mm -hmm. amino acids and some fats. And it's how the whole system works. And then you get to large intestine. It's basically just to absorb some water and some trace minerals. Yep. And then it just leaves it the way that it came in, but in more refined uh, digestive (laughs) portion. Right, right. But yeah, so everybody has some digestive stuff. And then we'll Mm. do some proprioceptive neuromuscular facilitation that uh, when you're stretching a muscle, you push one direction for five seconds gently, and then you go the other direction for five seconds. And so I can take somebody who's got really tight hip rotators, and I'll put them in a certain position, and I have them push one way for five seconds. And then when they pull the other way, the brain shuts off the proprioceptor on the other side. So the range of motion increases with just a little bit of effort. So we're retraining the brain that the body can be more supple and flexible. Because when I go to stretch out, my body is limited by my fascial connections. Mm -hmm. But so much of that is my brain's influence on my nervous system. So when I first started, I could barely touch, you know, my ankle. Mm-hmm. But if I do the contracting of the front and then the contracting and elongating the back, within three or four rounds, I'm palming the floor. Yep. It's not physiologic possible to change your body that quickly unless you're changing the brain. Right. And you're right. getting the muscles to contract yeah. and relax and work together. Right, right, right. So, yeah, to be clear on that point, a lot of people understand the fascial system is simply this sort of this network of kind of rope or stringy stuff that goes between the organs, between the muscles, through parts mm-hmm. of the muscles yeah. and connects everything. But it's also a system of communication. It's part of the nervous system. Yeah. So when you're influencing the cranial nerves, when you're, when you're relaxing the mind and telling the body it's okay to move in a certain plane, that has an impact directly on the fascial system. So you can influence those adhesions to some degree. Yes. But there's also probably limit you limited amount of that you can do if somebody's really locked up and really adhesed in a particular part of their body. You're going to have to break apart those adhesions with physical manipulation, correct? Correct. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's some of both. That's why we we yeah. want to open up the fascia. We want to stimulate the brain so the body has maximum um, resources, mm-hmm. and then go in and we do the stretching towards the end. So the body has been primed. the The organs are fluid and supple. Uh, since fascia covers everything, it covers every nerve, blood vessel, lymph vessel, mm. muscle fiber, you know, joint, and it's what gives you form and function. And so, yeah, and, and our muscles would literally hang off our bones yeah, from yeah. the tendons and ligaments yeah. if we didn't have fascia enveloping them, right? Because yeah. well, muscles at rest are like very, like squishy and that's, jelloey. That's how they're supposed to be, and right. that's how right. mine are. But mm-hmm. I think probably what I see is in cyclist thighs and in people who lift weights a lot, mm-hmm. they actually develop this fibrosity in the muscle mm-hmm. where. If, if I push, if I relax my arm, I can actually get all the way down through my bicep and tricep. I can feel my humerus and I can feel right. the muscle easily move yep. over the yep. bone. Yep. But in the people who are really tight and they've got that scar tissue that's built up from their movement pattern, that basically you can barely press into the muscle, but mm. you can't get down to the bone. So that's why with the rock blade and the soft tissue work that I'm kind of creating and doing, I can actually take a quad just above the patella that is rock hard from either running or cycling. And within a couple, three sessions, we can actually start to break up the adhesions. And so you can start to feel the four quad muscles move independent of each other. They're uh-huh. not glued together. But isn't some of that also subject to the phenotype of the athlete, right? I mean, there there are people have a higher resting muscle tone because of their hormonal structure and their, and their muscle fiber type. 
true or would well, you not? I, we're going to get to that in a little okay. while, but basically it has to do with cortisol and testosterone. Right. And so yeah. when you train too hard, your testosterone drops and your cortisol goes up. So you're going to make more um, scar tissue and you can't heal. When you do an exercise where the testosterone goes up and the cortisol goes down, you're going to rebuild, you're going to repair, yeah. and there won't be as many adhesions. Right. And right. basically, yeah. you'll normalize your glucose level and you'll shift your body to that parasympathetic state mm-hmm. where it can regenerate new tissue and heal itself. So, but if we had, let's say we had two hypothetically identically sized athletes, you know, same, same body mass, same height, same amount of fat, adipose tissue. And we had one who was dominantly slow twitch and one was dominantly fast twitch. Mm-hmm. And we gave them both similar exercise programs and similar rest and recovery programs. So they were both doing all the proper things to mm-hmm. lower, cortis- lowering, lower cortisol or have proper cortisol rhythm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cortisol should rise and set with the sun, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So that means at night your cortisol level is going down. It's not still jacked up because yeah. you rode your bike seven hours and then watched Game of Thrones while you were eating dinner at the speed of light and stayed up till one in the morning. To give you a worst case example. So... We have these two, these two athletes, and and they're doing everything right, but one's very fast twitch, and one's very slow twitch. Would would the fast twitch athlete in that case have a higher resting muscle tone, or would you say since they're both doing all the proper things, all the breathing and all the the parasympathetic activities, that we would find a similar ability to push that muscle, separate those quads, and push down to the femur and feel that loose muscle tension. So I would take those two individuals and give them different workout programs and a different course, tempo. Right, yes. And, then, and okay. then they could probably meet in the middle somewhere. Okay. But also there's different body types. There's your pituitary body type. That's your basic like, you know, NFL, you know, six, eight. And then also what happens is uh, you get a thyroid body type. That's your tall, wispy, like model type. So more ectomorphic, more... Yeah, more ectomorphic, not as muscular. Remind me, uh, sorry, Vada would be the football in... Pitta would be more... Pitta would be more ectomorphic, tall, very skinny, which we see a lot of cyclists with that body type. Uh Not all of them, but... But the problem with that body type is, is that you look really good and people can push themselves harder but they don't have the reserves. So when their bodies break down, their journey back to wellness is much longer Uh, of all the four body types. Wait, you don't think that one of the goals of exercise should be aesthetic beauty and ripped muscles? Well, you know, I think that (laughs) the inner beauty should come forth with the smile on the face, relaxing Mm. while enjoying the exercise. And that, uh, you know, I think our our culture is too hung up on body fat percentage. I want you to be feeling good because they they don't Mm. have the reserves, but they look really good. And the thyroid controls metabolism. So it kind of keeps you going a little bit. Mm -hmm. But then when the bank account is dry and the credit card bills come due, they have no resources. They have no reserves. Mm -hmm. So the next one is adrenal. So I'm more of an adrenal body type, Mm -hmm. not as tall, but stocky. Mm-hmm. And so I can put muscle on real quick, but I tend to carry it under stress a little more body fat. Mm-hmm. And then you have your gonadal, gonadal body type. That's your Dolly Parton and your um, Danny uh, the little DeVito. Sh- DeVito. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 So they're yeah. more gonadal type. So they're more curvy and round. Uh-huh. And so you, you're not going to take a gonadal type and make them look like a thyroid body type. So I think our body image is askew. Mm-hmm. So I tell people, man, don't you don't really have to stand on the scale. Do your workout, live your life, eat good, eat, sleep, yes. be around the ones you love, have a quality life. And, and what you weigh is what you weigh. And if it, you berate yourself on an ongoing basis, uh, that negative thinking messes with your nervous system. It messes yes. with your whole endocrine system. And also it's just that you're not going to get your quality of life that, you know, really the joie de vivre that we're all looking for. Mm. It's not down that path. I, yeah, I, I had this conversation with a lot of athletes this in the last year. It's been a theme. 
but you know, cycling in particular, especially performance racers are so focused on watts per kilogram, mm -hmm. how much power can you make versus how much you weigh. And the idea is that the more watts and the less weight, the faster you go uphill. Well, yeah, and in a very 50,000 foot view, that's true. But of course, weight is far more than just overall weight. It's about body composition. I mean, yeah, you yeah. can be, you know, skinny yet fat, meaning you can yeah. have poor muscle tone and yeah. be totally smoked because your hormones are trash because you're not eating enough or you're chronically starving yourself or you're eating poor food, not, not enough healthy fats, not enough good quality proteins, just slamming a bunch of refined carbohydrates in you. And then you're training like a maniac. So you're just frying your adrenals. Your cortisol levels are floating through the sky all 24 hours a day. And then you get on the bike, you have nothing left. You're like a poof mm -hmm. of dust. Yeah. So, but you look air quotes great because mm -hmm. you're super lean and you're ripped and you're shredded. And we can see all the veins popping out of you because you're, mm -hmm. and that, that doesn't mean you're healthy, but yep. this yep. is the discerning eye has to look at an athlete and say, are you, are you really healthy from within or are you superficially healthy? You're ash and gray because your hormones are depleted, et yeah. cetera. And you're just running, grinding yourself into oblivion. There's a big difference there. Uh, I think that's, unfortunately, it's a theme in our sport. And well, I guess that's part of why I do what I do, because I like to educate people about the the nuance and the discernment mm -hmm. of what true health is, right? Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, And that's why I so appreciate your guidance. I just have to say, Scott, that in some of my previous podcasts, I've mentioned that I don't, I haven't had a lot of mentors in my life in my racing career. And when I say that, I've typically meant it in more of a, you know, standing by the side of the velodrome while I'm doing track workouts and telling me what I've done right and wrong. Or, and I've had some coaches, but I haven't had a consistent coaching in a long-term sense of guides of my career and those types of things. But you have definitely played the role of a mentor in my life in terms of guiding me in my holistic health journey. And I just want to take a moment to say, thank you very much. I'm really grateful for your presence and your love. I'm honored. Thank you. Yeah. This, this is why I do what I do mm. is that basically you are given an opportunity to continually refine and improve your effort and get a better return on your investment. Yes. And not just try to pound through the books and, and do what you were taught. You actually make it work for you. Mm. And being highly motivated as a competitive cyclist, it's like you, you want that little, every little uh, tweak mm. that you can do, diet, lifestyle, supplement, sleep pattern, et cetera, mm. so that your body can function optimally and recover faster. Mm. Yeah. Stay healthy. It's such a fascinating wormhole in our sport, though, because I think I think a lot of athletes are exactly on board with that line of thought. They want to uh, – the term that gets thrown around in our sport a lot is marginal gains, right? They want to dig on all those marginal gains. The part where things, I think, are slightly misguided frequently is that people are looking for marginal gains in things like their equipment. Mm -hmm. yep. So they, they're concerned about whether the derailleur pulleys weigh 12 grams each or 10 grams each or whether they should have a, a specially coated chain or ceramic bearings in every item. They're concerned about every gram of aerodynamic drag in their wheel set. Yeah. And those are all places where you can make marginal gains. Yeah. But my lesson as a coach that I kind of continually recycle to my athletes is, look, if you before we get to marginal gains, let's look at, I don't know, what's the opposite term for marginal gains? I haven't thought about this. Big basic gains, fundamental gains, right? Yeah. yeah. Foundational gains. Foundational, yeah, yeah. And if you're going to bed at 1230 a.m. every morning and your chronotype or every, every in the morning and every chrono, your chronotype is such that like most people's is more towards the 10, 1030, maybe even earlier, depending on who you are, you're missing the first two to three hours of regenerative sleep that is absolutely crucial. That will far outweigh any derailleur pulley, ceramic bearing, skin suit you're going to buy. Buy a factor of, I don't know what, name your big number here. 
So it's about refocusing the athlete yep. to look more holistically and globally at their life choices and health to maximize their dream goal and passion, which is for now being an athlete, right? Well, you bring up that sleep pattern. This is really interesting because I go to sleep about eight and wake up around four mm -hmm. and I'm automatically just wake up and I'm ready to go and greet my day. Whereas there are other people who go to sleep around 11 or 12, yep. which would kill me, mm. but for them, they still wake up rested in the morning. And so in Chinese medicine, it's very much related to circadian rhythm is that nine to three is the most important time to sleep mm -hmm. because that's when the chi is going internal as it relates to your circadian rhythm. It's getting dark. And so yeah. it's kind of like wake and sleep with the light dark cycle. And so for Rising me, yeah, 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 yeah. But how do you feel sleep chronotype plays into that? You know, I think some bit, people, right? uh, they were either grew up in the womb that way or, mm -hmm. you know, it's just their, their nature of their personality that they're a little more mentally active and it takes them a little longer to wind down. Mm -hmm. Whereas it, for me, I hit eight o'clock and I'm like, it's been a full, rich, lovely day and I just need to go to sleep right now. Yeah. And what about those of us who probably are gravitated more towards the 10, 10, 30 side, but we mm -hmm. happen to be married to those night dwellers? Uh I, I would say <laughs> I would go to bed early and let the other person dwell in the night mm. so that you honor your circadian rhythm and your mate honors theirs. And that way you're both honoring each other's cycle. Mm -hmm. And then that way uh, for you endocrine, from an endocrinological point of view, it's that's important just to kind of find your rhythm. And I just happy to be married to the same lovely woman for 38 years. Mm. And uh, basically we both sleep and wake at the same time. Mm. And my dogs have even, they, they know the cycle now. They've adjusted. Yeah, they know when it's 4 a.m. And it's kind of like if I'm still laying there, they'll come over and like nose my hand and go, hey. Come on, Dad. Yeah, let me out. Time to go out. Yeah. Yeah. So the whole family's on board. Mm. Otto, our, our Shiba Inu, is nine. He's mostly probably 98% blind. And I'm sure he still has a sense of day and night, mm -hmm. but not always. There are times when he wakes up in the middle of the night and just thinks it's time to get up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's one of our little life challenges we get to yep. deal with. So anyway. yes. <laughs> I'm lucky I don't have cats. Cats uh, disrupt the sleep pattern of many of my patients. They, cats can do that. Yeah, yeah. 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 Sometimes yeah. at 1230, they wake up and start beep beeps of banging around the house. And that's always interesting. Yeah. So. And then that disrupts your REM time. So you're, Right. Yeah. So if, if you get your eight, my goal is seven to nine and a half hours of sleep. So in the summertime, when it's the summer solstice, the days are so short, I can get by with seven, seven and a half. But as we're mm -hmm. cruising into the darker time, my body likes nine hours of like rest and rejuvenation. A little more caves, yeah. a little more winter restorative yeah. to deal with the cold weather. And well, and, and the glial cells in the brain, they actually, that's what cleanses the brain. Mm -hmm. They need the eight or nine hours of sleep to basically refresh in the brain. Yes. And if you only get six hours of sleep, you keep carrying part of your previous day stress on and it becomes cumulative. Mm -hmm. And so when you hit 40, 50, 60 years old, you've ravaged your body just by the fact that the one most important thing that I tell people is that sleep is numero uno. If you don't sleep, you don't repair from exercise. Yes. If you don't sleep, you don't repair your brain. You're more likely to have dementia, Alzheimer's, mm -hmm. you know, cognitive issues, et cetera. So you won't heal after surgery, you know, mm -hmm. things like that. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I'm constantly reminding my clients, like we have all these Cycling and training are such yang activities. They're doing, dividing, yep. conquering. We have to balance that with the yin side, which is the multiplying, rejuvenating side of life choices. And number one by far is sleep. Yep. And that's a piece of advice I give my athletes, especially in the week or week or two before you know their season-long goal, their most important competition. This is the week to not go take the lawnmower to yeah. get fixed, you know, buy a new vacuum. Uh, don't schedule your vet appointments that week. If you can avoid it, 
try to minimize any extracurricular stuff and take that time that you would normally be running around doing errands or doing all the things. Just let the to-do list, to-do list go. You've built for this event for months. Now is the time to just take a nap if you have an extra 45 minutes in the afternoon or go to bed 45 minutes earlier. Even if you can't fall asleep right away, that time in bed will help make a more restorative evening of rest. Well, it's interesting you would say take a nap because after we eat our lunch, whether it's a work day or a non-work day, we on a work day, you usually only get 20 or 25 minutes. We meditate. Mm-hmm. So we close our eyes. It's totally quiet in the house. And we just breathe and we just meditate. And you would be surprised how refreshing the, the afternoon is. Mm-hmm. But if I have a lot of emergencies, stress, yeah. and I don't get my meditation, parasympathetic stimulation, my afternoon, I have to drag my carcass through the rest of the day and I'm mm-hmm. not as relaxed and resourced as I normally am. Yeah. So I really encourage people to take that little break, even if it's a 10-minute nap or something. Yep. Just let yourself just decompress. Mm. Yeah. I have a quick little technique I use for that. You know, there are times I haven't, I think I must be in a pretty good cycle now because I'm not, I'm not feeling the need to nap in the afternoon, but there are times in the afternoon where I feel I need that little refresh of energy. And what I'll do is I'll, I'll turn the lights off in my office, let my other people that I share my office with know that I'm going to need to not be disturbed for 15 minutes, turn the phone off. You can actually turn your phones off people, or you can put them on airplane mode. It's a thing. And I'll put my legs straight up against the wall. Yep. So I'll put my butt all the way against the wall. Legs are straight up. So I'm not completely relaxed. The intent is not to nap and sleep. It's to be relaxed with just a slight uh, awareness to posture. In this case, keep my legs from falling over. And if I have them, I'll put on compression leggings and then I'll put in headphones and I'll plug in binaural beats mm-hmm. for about 10 or 15 minutes. And I'll then I'll focus on some deep, slow, rhythmic breath, inhale of six, outhale of six. And I'll just do that. And man, I wake up and it, sometimes it feels amazing. It's like I've taken an hour long nap. My brain's refreshed. My body's refreshed. I got some passive lymph drainage in there and yep. some passive massage from the, the gravity. Sometimes your feet are tingling by the end because you're just draining everything. You spend yep. 99% of your life either laying horizontal or vertical, which is just constantly working. It's, it's, it's well, this could lead to our conversation about blood stagnation if yep. you're open to that. Yep. But the blood just and the lymph and the fluids all drain door towards the feet. So occasionally yep. we got to undo that cycle yep. and be inverted. Yep. And then you get that drainage. Inverted. Yeah. So basically yeah. you refresh yourself and you also, you uh, refresh the fluids in your body. So your mm-hmm. legs are fresh. You know? mm-hmm. So if you want to go out for a little gentle stroll, mm-hmm. so you don't get that double dipping of cortisol, that would be a really nice time to do it. Okay. So you asked me, what are my rituals before I start yes. seeing my patients? Okay. I wake up at 4am. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then uh, we make green tea. Oh, I do a body scan. So I wake up and I'm like, what is my body saying to me? Do I have any parts that are achy or stiff or sore? Because that'll tell me about my workout or my work day or, you know, chores around the house and how my body responded to it. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, make the green tea, uh, pull the nuts out. So we always eat nuts and seeds in the morning when we wake up because mm-hmm. you want to break your fast. Right. And so if I've been fasting since my previous dinner, then what happens is, is that I'm releasing cortisol. That's why cortisol is as lowest at midnight because you had your dinner meal. Mm-hmm. So your, your blood sugar is nice and high. When it starts to drop while you're sleeping, when it gets to a certain point, then the body releases cortisol to bring the uh, the blood sugar, blood back, sugar up. back up. Yeah, yeah. And so what happens is is that if you're continuing to not eat in the morning, and this gets me into intermittent fasting, which is an interesting concept, mm-hmm. but it's not natural or normal, is that basically if I have a snack when I wake up with my green tea, I'm going to supply my body with fat, carbohydrate, and protein and a lot of fiber. Mm-hmm. So what it's going to do is going to raise my blood sugar up slowly. 
And that slow rising of the blood sugar is going to give me energy. So when it comes time to work out in the morning, I'm fueled. I'm ready to go. Mm. So we do that. And let's see, homeopathic drainage. And I have a little habit that has evolved since I was uh, ill last October is that I put a little bit of aloe juice in the bottom of a glass and then a little bit of organic apple juice on top of it. And I chew it. And the reason I started the habit was, is that when I was sick, I lost 20 pounds in four days. Mm. And so I was starving to death, but my stomach wouldn't let me eat any solid food. And I'm like, okay, what would I tell my patient to do? Because I always ask that, what would Dr. Story tell, tell me to do? <laughs> he always gives me really good advice. So he said, I should have apple juice with aloe, aloe to heal the lining of my stomach mm. and apple juice for some carbohydrates. And so what happened was, is I started putting weight on, but it also the aloe healed my gut. Mm. So I just do a little bit of aloe because it's alkaline. Mm. You know, it, some people think it fights cancer. It's just one of those phytonutrient foods that's really good for you. Mm-hmm. So then with that, we, uh, we share time and we have some quality time. And then also I journal and I'm writing my book. Mm-hmm. And so that just kind of flows. And I do a little bit of studying, check my emails. Then at 740-ish, um, we roll the carpet up and it's time for Polango. So we nice. plug in the uh, iPad <laughs> to the TV and yeah. we just, just kick it. And so, you know, whether it's 32 to 49 minutes are the workouts that we do. Mm-hmm. Then after... Yeah. Then after that, we have our, I call it, I'm a hobbit. That's my first breakfast. So I'm starving after I've done my exercise <laughs> and I've already been awake for four and a half hours. Now it's time uh, for second now breakfast. Now it's time for first breakfast. First, oh, breakfast, first breakfast is uh, leftovers from the night before. So like chicken, pork chop, you know, beef, steak, uh, buffalo, some fish, whatever, and some vegetables. And uh, my cilantro pesto recipe that's on the website, nice. we have cilantro pesto. Mm. And so that's first breakfast. Then it's time to, you know, take a shower, clean up. Then we come back for second breakfast. And on work days, the second breakfast for me is a protein powder, whole body collagen, uh, paleo fiber, GI Revive. I put in some TMG powder, trimethylglycine, because it's a great methyl donor and it's great for the liver. Mm. And uh, a thing called pre-trained NRG. And that all goes in my pint-sized container and then put water in, shake, shake, shake. And I think it's real important when you do protein drinks or a smoothie, you have to chew it. Because when you chew, mm. you release saliva, and those enzymes actually start the digestive problem. Right. But you're also telling your stomach, hey, something's coming down there. You might want to wake some acid, right. help me digest right. it. Because if you just go gulp, 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 gulp yeah. you got this big blob of undigested material and no hydrochloric acid. So right. it kind of rots and putrefies, and bad things happen to good food. Yes. So I chew right. my drink. Right. Good to send down. Turn my lasers on, you know, mm-hmm. get ready to treat the day. Okay. So that's my okay. morning. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So that's so, five and a half hours. So you, you start it, you start off with some, some nuts. You said first thing in the morning, some yeah. green tea. Why? I mean, contrast that, like what happens if people just get up and have pancakes and coffee? Tell us about the cascade of how so, that might influence. So for me, coffee is a roasted bean. It's rancid. And so I used to get low back pain and I used to be quite the coffee connoisseur. Mm. And what I found was, is that I had graduated to either Sumatra or Mexican Altura because I was walking through Whole Foods and I'm like, I need the lowest acid coffee possible because I don't want to harm my kidneys Mm -hmm. because I was finding I'm starting to get kidney pain. So I started doing that. And then what happened was, is when I drink coffee, I start to get low back pain and Mm. it burns my intestines. So I switched over to green tea, which has the exact same caffeine content as decaf. Mm -hmm. And so we do Chinese pour with our little Chinese teapot that we have. And we get our tea from Chinatown. We drink like six or seven different kinds because green tea has very vastly different flavors, Mm -hmm. but a high polyphenolic content fights Mm -hmm. cancer. It's good for your immune system, good for your brain. Mm -hmm. So the green tea is always better than the coffee because usually coffee comes with something like cream in it. So my patients who drink coffee, they do the MCT oil. Yeah. In it. The bulletproof style. yeah, yeah, Yeah. Bulletproof style. And so the green tea and then the nuts with the fiber 
slowly releasing. First, you have to chew it really well. Mm. Okay. Pancakes, done. You get the butter thing going, yeah. you know, yeah. you got the syrup all on it. It's high glycemic, yes. no fiber. So basically, you're going to get a quick rush of energy from the caffeine whipping the adrenal glands. Yes. And the pancakes. On and top then, of that, uh -huh. it's like and a then double whammy. Yep. And then you're going to get your gluten fix. It's going to cause intestines to get irritated. Mm -hmm. Your body's going to think there's a foreign body in there and they're going to want to kill the bacteria. And so mm -hmm. really bad things happen. So for mm -hmm. me, you know, with the nuts and seeds, oh, and this is on my list, but it's further on, is that Blue Mountain Organics is in Virginia mm -hmm. and they sprout and they dehydrate at 108 degrees, the nuts. Yes. And so basically when you sprout them, you make them more digestible. Right. And so then when you dehydrate them at a low temperature, they're not rancid. It's still biologically a live food. Mm -hmm. And so we order all our nuts and seeds from them. So I tried their Blue Mountain Organics, uh, some of their sprouted nut butters, and I found they've got a pretty potent, bitter aftertaste to them. Have you found that? How do you, is that from the skin of the almonds being in there and the almond butter in particular? I think I've a, I got a hazelnut and an almond. Very, it was a, I, I was pretty surprised at how bitter the aftertaste was. Interesting, because yeah. I have not tried any of their uh, nut butters yet. Okay. I've just strictly, you know, I do um, all different kinds of nuts and sesame seeds because I make my own gamasio. And so they actually sprout their black and white sesame seeds, the whole okay. ones. And so I make mm. my gamasio. And so I sit there and I just chew it. But it could be, you know, because of the sprouting process and the shell still on there. Sorry, what's a gamasio? What's that? I don't know what that is. Uh, gamasio is, uh, it's a Japanese food. So you never go have sushi and they've got the little sesame seeds on there. Oh, okay. Okay, so what you do is in a pan, I use stainless steel pan over like medium low heat. You put some of the black and the white ones in with a little Celtic sea salt or mm -hmm. flower of the ocean. And then you just kind of toss them and they'll start to get kind of a smoky color. And the white with ones no get- no oil. You just let no the oil, oil of yeah. the seed. Yeah, the oil of the seed actually the yeah, a little bit. comes okay. out. And so I sit there and I do it usually- uh, I think the I get one bag each black and one bag of the white, and that takes probably about maybe ten uh, portions because you want it to uh, evenly heat mm -hmm. but not overheat, yeah. but then also not have to overcook it to make it all interesting that flavor. But that has the biggest chi of all. So we usually run out of that first. So we're going to actually order more, uh, you know, sesame uh, seeds to make the gamasio because mm -hmm. it is my most nourishing food. I can eat just a little bit of that. And the chi is so strong. It carries me longer than the equivalent amount of like cashews, pecans, almonds, macadamia nuts, Brazil nuts, and pistachios. Those so are when you're having nuts. seeds in the morning, nuts and seeds, yeah, that's, yeah. that's what you're talking about. The yeah, gamasio. yeah. Yeah. So, and do you just eat it, uh, by the spoon or do you, yeah, you can spoon it. I just, I have or a little do you uh, put it on something or nut you just, container. Just yeah. put it in my hand and just toss okay, it in my okay. mouth and yeah, off I go. A couple, like a couple little handfuls. Yeah, a couple yeah. little handfuls. And also, you know, during the day, if you get hungry, it's a nice little snack. Keeps uh -huh. you awake. It fires you up. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds kind of similar. Like you read uh, Born to Run, they're talking about the chia mm -hmm. slurry that the runner, the Tamahura runners yeah. use when they, yeah. and that's, I think it's a similar concept, like a yeah. very... Um, lasting energy source that's yeah it's got it's nutrient dense and sesame seeds in the chia they're very high yeah they've got good fats in them so yeah. that helps stabilize the blood sugar more yeah okay but carnivore diet saladino says all this stuff's bad phytonutrients are bad for you fiber's a fantasy a fairy tale he says nuts and seeds plants want to kill us mm -hmm. is something i've heard come out of paul's mouth i know that's a big topic that was like 12 yeah. questions yeah. in one but i'd love to hear your thought on the carnivore diet and paul's so, so when we get to the diet part, yes. I've, I've elaborated on all okay, okay. keto acidosis yes. and yeah, all right, great. Yeah, the low carb diet and all Perfect. that. And why they're, they're trendy fad diets mm -hmm. designed to smack the body and wake it up because it's been so far down the wrong path mm. that it, we need a major intervention. So this is the, someone, the concept that a lot of vegetarians in my experience feel great when they're coming from the standard American diet. I mean, mm -hmm. you're eating 
like microwave pizzas and McDonald's and to be blunt, shit food, yeah. and then you go vegetarian, mm-hmm. you're going to feel amazing because you're, you're cleaning you're getting your cheap. system out. Yeah, you got some, you're, you're Your actually, real live food has yeah. got fiber. It's got water in it and trace minerals and vitamins and minerals. And so you're going to feel great. But I tried to be not, a vegetarian yeah. and I tried to be a vegan. And health was a place I passed through. Mm. And you're right. This was the euphoria of eating real food. Mm. And so uh, with my frame, and now I'm about 176 pounds. I, I dropped down to 125. I look like a Krakow victim. And I have that sickly <laughs> orange-yellow color mm. that you see a lot of vegetarians and vegans have. And or so Donald Trump. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But his, is, his comes from the Big Mac and, right. uh, and the fries <laughs> and the Diet source. Coke. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And so it's just, uh, it's just important to eat real food. And mm. people, when I, when I look at their food intake, when they come in, we do the, the whole diet plan. You know, what vegetables do you eat? What fruits? What nuts? What seeds? We're going to talk about my five favorites and my five yes. just likes wonderful very excited okay is that part of it is people start feeling better just because they ixnay on the bad stuff a and they bring in the good and their body starts to respond because like you said earlier the body wants to be well the Mm -hmm. body wants to be happy it wants to be vibrant wants Mm -hmm. to be alive Mm -hmm. okay yeah wonderful so my health philosophies yes life is an evolving experiment it's trial error and successes and so if you just Mm -hmm. think about this is like training you know uh what works, what doesn't work, you know, it changes with the seasons and the length of the day. And so this whole experience, this journey that we're on that we call life is trial and error. Mm-hmm. And so I like to not reinvent the wheel. So I like to study with different people and take what works for me. Mm-hmm. That's why when we get to the diet part, I'm a flexitarian. Philosophically, uh, as it relates to the body, I, the body knows no systems. Mm-hmm. It knows it wants to be well. And that's mm-hmm. why I study so many different disciplines is that my job is to listen to your body and have it look into my tool bag and say, I want this and this and this and this order. Mm-hmm. And then it goes, oh, thank you very much, Scott. I feel much better. <laughs> or, oh, let's not try that again, Scott. Yes. <laughs> I, appreciate, I appreciate the offer, but I'll say no thank you. <laughs> I've had many of those <laughs> from my body. Yes. Well, the funny thing is, it is uh, and we can talk about this now because it's coming up here in just a little while. Mm-hmm. Uh, new patient. She's 16 years old. She was born to a mom who had Lyme's disease but didn't know it. Mm. So she got Lyme's disease and it's really impacted her neurological development, her physiologic development. So I go to work on her body and her body literally pushes me out. Interesting. And, and I'm, I'm going slow and I'm taking my time. And I, and I asked the daughter, are you pushing me out? She goes, no, that's my body. Like when you try to... Like do if I want to do visceral manipulation on her mm. and just release her diaphragm gently... There's a certain rate of change her body inherently will tolerate. Mm-hmm. And so the mom looked at me because every other practitioner she's seen has been too forceful, uh, too fast, because you've got your agenda. And your, and your time, limited time. Yeah, and your limited time. Yep. So what I found was if I go slowly with her and her body starts to just even get a little tight, I back off and come in a different angle and a little bit slower. Mm. And also when I rock blade her, her body needs slow Gentle mm-hmm. strokes. If I go too fast, she'll start to give me muscle cramps and spasms. Oh, interesting. And so I've, I've seen it n- more subtly with people, but I've never seen it so pronounced that her body literally would did that. And her mm-hmm. mom was so happy because her daughter's getting results and she's gone through her entire life with not much help. Because mm-hmm. yeah. the impact, especially in Lyme's disease, is the neurovisual so we're such an optically oriented society and we're so visually dependent mm-hmm. and the nervous system has to interpret it and respond. But if you're a neurovisual 
uh, processing is uh, one is Windows and one is Mac. <laughs> uh, the, the, unless you have parallels and you can like run them both at the same right, time, right, right. It, it doesn't really work that way. <laughs> yeah. 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 So what are the implications of blood viscosity on health and why is having thick blood undesirable? Yes. Well, the reason is, is, and this was my first lecture that I gave back in 1995, is that basically when the blood goes through the artery, it needs to flow easily and effortlessly. And so there's a thing called INR, in ratio. And it's a test you can get when you get your blood done. And what they do is they'll tell you how thick your blood is. Mm-hmm. So 1.0 is the average. So if I look at the top five reasons for death in America, mm-hmm. heart attack, blood clot, right, cancer, uh, compromised circulation is mm-hmm. a big part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, third one is um, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. That used to be way down the list, but I don't know if it's because of smog and smoking, mm-hmm. but lung disease actually is the number three killer. Wow. Yeah. Number four, they call accidents, but several years ago, that was called medical malpractice. So, <laughs> oops, wrong medication, oops, surgical complication, right. oops, misdiagnosis. So, the number four cause of death, they call it accidents and trauma. And number five is stroke. Stroke used to be number three, but uh-huh. it's dropped down because the other two have moved have up. Moved up, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so that is the medical implication of hypercoagulation. But as a, a person who wants to feel optimal, if your blood is thick, that means it's going out thick and it's coming back thick. And what happens when you squeeze something in like a sieve and you push harder, more fluid leaks out. So you're going to get more lymphedema. Right. And so there you are, you know, trying to go through your day and the blood's not getting where it wants to go. And you're having all this fluid stagnation build up in the peripheral tissues. Mm -hmm. And so you're setting up a whole system where your oxygen level is going to go down, Mm -hmm. your carbon dioxide level is going to go up because the cells can't get the nourishment and they can't release the waste products. Mm -hmm. So you're setting up this whole inefficient system. So maybe we can pause it for just a second, Mm -hmm. Scott. I want to make sure that my audience understands how how the lymphatic system actually works works and how does when if if blood is hypercoagulated so it's too thick mm-hmm. so the capillary the the arterial system eventually goes down to capillary right. size and so the capillaries have little holes in the side like little right. they're permeable membrane capillaries are the microscopic yeah. parts of the arterial yeah. system that deliver oxygen or remove co2 yeah. from muscle so tissue and it, waste yeah, products right? right it delivers oxygen and also nutrients right so all the vitamins and minerals the glucose that you need the yep. fats the yep. protein that all leaks out of the capillary and then once you get past the capillary into the muscle cells. into the muscle cells organs yep. all the tissue yep. okay then you have the venule and so what happens is because the the osmolality of the blood has changed the fluid that's around the the venule the, some of the fluid actually the used fluid comes back in. So it either comes back in through the venule or it comes back through the lymphatic system. But 10% of the fluid goes out into the tissue and comes back through the lymphatic system. Mm-hmm. Carrying then, waste products. Yeah, yeah carrying waste right. products. Yeah. So if you don't, and what's interesting about the lymphatic system, correct me if I'm wrong on this, my understanding is that lymphatic ducts or the lymphatic system is basically unidirectional towards the heart, mm-hmm. which is why when we get a massage, mm-hmm. a good massage therapist will always work from distal to proximal, or meaning from the hands, if they're massaging the arm, they work from the hands towards the shoulder. On the legs, they work from the feet towards the hips because you're pushing that lymph. You're doing two things during massage. You're breaking fascial adhesions, depending on how deep you're going. And well, it goes back to our rock blade conversation. You don't have to go deep, but, and you're moving lymph. And so if you, and since lymph ducts are unidirectional, so so that's, so that's lymph tissue. And then, but then once, then the, the the lymph fluid with waste fat with with waste products in it accumulates in the lymph ducts. 
Right. How is it removed from there? There's no, we have to do that actively. So the lacteal is a, it's a blinded pouch. So the lymph vessels actually like exist, uh, created nowhere. And they have these little valves. So every time you move, what happens is the valves open and close. And through the movement, you actually open and close. You start to bring the fluid in. And then as you progress to larger uh, lymphatic vessels, they start to get smooth muscle valves in them so you don't get the retroflow. So when it starts to get first get picked up, there's no valves in there. So it came at at a very small level. Yeah. 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 Okay. But as they get bigger, there's one directional valves. And then, and you, you facilitate that process through deep breathing, movement, yeah. rebounding, yeah. which yeah. is basically yeah. a little trampoline or, a mini tramp. yeah. Yeah. or light running and jogging would do yeah. it. Any yeah. kind of jostling motion yeah. Yeah. that helps. Yeah. Well, also any exercise you do will actually pump pumps lymph. the lymph in the blood. Right. And then, so everything below the diaphragm and on the left half of the upper body drains into the left lymphatic duct mm-hmm. and everything on the right side drain into the right lymphatic duct. Guess which breast has more breast cancer? Mm. It would be the left one because the left one has to process 75% of the lymph of the whole body. The right side only does 25. Ah, right. And so if this has to process and the fat you eat, actually, they called chylomicrons. They absorb through the lymphatic system in the belly and then they actually get pushed up in through the lymph into uh, the subclavian terminus. So there's a connection between. So you're saying there's a connection between breast cancer and perhaps... Uh, someone who's living a lifestyle that doesn't drain lymph as regularly or effectively as, Correct. as they should. And, and you drain. know, if you're eating a bad diet and your yeah. gut's all inflamed, all that stuff's going to create more lymph stagnation. Yep. And so usually yep. I see when people come in, the left lymphatic duct is more congested than the right side. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah. Yeah. So when you have your CO2 level goes up and your waste products go up, you're going to become less efficient as an athlete or as a person on the planet. Mm. But carbon dioxide always travels through the body as an acid. Because it dissociates the acid from the uh, the, the carbon uh, oxygen molecule. Mm-hmm. When the pH shifts, the pH of your body has a very narrow range. And all of our enzymes function between 7.35, 7.38. So as you become acidic and that number starts to go down, the body needs more minerals. Yeah, it takes minerals usually from the yeah. bones, yeah, right? Exactly, yeah. Wherever so, it can get them to yeah. alkalize. Yeah, to exactly. Keep, yeah. Because your body wants to have the pH of blood be in a very narrow range, very otherwise you die. Range. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so that's why a lot of people as they age, their problem with osteoporosis is not that they're suffering from a Fosamax deficiency or some drug. <laughs> it's that they don't exercise. They eat a very acidic diet. And again, when most new patients come in, if, especially if they have health issues, mm. the pH of their saliva is very acidic. And mm. it reflects the pH of the extracellular fluid, which is the lymphatics. Mm. And so I can treat somebody and then and they can take some mineral supplements that I have and it will shift their pH over a period of time. So then they can save their bone mm. mass later in life. This is so interesting. I just read an article recently with um, Asker Jukendrup, who's a sports scientist and a dietitian, I believe. And he wrote an article about the myth of the alkaline diet. And he was saying, he pointed out that different body tissues have different pH ranges. Mm-hmm. The blood has a certain pH range, the gut, the stomach, et cetera, et cetera, depending on what their function is. And and he did point out that the blood is, has a, the body maintains the blood in a very narrow pH range yeah, because yeah. the blood is your channel to move all these critical nutrients and food sources and whatnot to and from body tissues. So, but his conclusion was that the diet actually doesn't really impact the alkalinity of the overall system or particularly the blood. I think it's safe to say you disagree with that. I totally disagree with that. Yeah. 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 yeah interesting. Because if you have to look at, you know, if you eat mostly a paleo diet, which is vegetable based, mm-hmm. vegetables are very alkaline. Mm-hmm. Most fruit is alkaline, but the, uh, 
But meats are meat is very acidic. acidic. Yeah, and meat so, also does it doesn't have a lot of vitamins and minerals in it. It does have B twelve and it has some mm -hmm. vitamins and minerals, especially unless you're the organ meats. Organ meats. I was just yeah, going to say, yeah. unless you're talking about organ meats, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. But you know, uh, uh, my wife is an, not an organ meat friendly person. Mm. So when I cook my dog's food up, she's like, "That's not for us." Is it? And I'm like, "No, no, that's not for us." <laughs> But so this yeah. is where Saladino steps in and to, not to keep forwarding the conversation at that point, but he has a new company he just started called Heart and Soil, mm -hmm. and it is desiccated organs of liver, spleen, mm -hmm. da, 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 yeah. a whole bunch of other stuff. And for those people who don't enjoy, I found liver to be one of the most polarizing foods I've mm -hmm. ever mm -hmm. quizzed people about. Either, yeah. People either are like, yeah, I yeah, liver, no yeah, problem, yeah. or... Their grandmother and mother made them eat it all the time when they were kids and cooked it and they yeah. can't stand the smell and they'll never touch it again in yeah, their lives. Yeah, and yeah. everyone I found is on one one side of that fence or the other. Mm -hmm. There seems to be no middle ground. But true or false, liver is one of the most, if not the most, nutrient-dense foods we know of, correct? Mm -hmm, correct. And also, it's it, when you eat those foods, it's a glandular. Yes. So if I want to improve the function of my heart, I'll eat some heart meat. Right. If I want right. to eat some it's one liver, one in yeah, case. I get more yeah. liver enzymes and liver RNA and DNA. Right. Yeah. And we all want healthy functioning organs. Yes. Well, you know, they're pancreatic glandulars, and that actually improves your capacity to make um, amylase, protease, and lipase, uh -huh. the enzymes, but also yeah. uh, insulin. Mm -hmm. So if somebody's pancreas is weak, by eating pancreas, you can actually improve the functionality of it. Okay. But uh, sweet bread, that's what they call it in the oh, dietary that, world. Pancreas, yeah, is, yeah, it, pancreas yeah. is sweet bread. Sweet bread. Okay. Because when something dies, the enzymes mm -hmm. actually digest it, and that's why they call it sweet bread. Yeah. Because it's tender and it's sweet. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. But just like any meats that we consume, you're consuming the organs. I mean, the liver is a filter, is one mm -hmm. of its many functions, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you're eating commercially processed, you big would... big food, you and you have liver, you go to the store and you buy liver, it's going to be crap, right? I exactly. Mean, yeah. So, you know, when we, we get to the, the diet part, so everything I eat is organic, yeah. free range, grass-fed, pasture-raised, lion caught. Mm -hmm. That's all the protein sources that I eat. Yeah. And so those actually are all beneficial, but I won't eat, feed, I don't want feedlot remorse. They're treated so poorly and they feed them commercial soy and corn. And yep. that includes all the pesticides. So whenever you eat an animal, whatever it eats, it concentrates and you get more mm -hmm. of it. So if I want a dose of GMO and pesticides, then I would eat the commercial meat. And antibiotics. Yeah. 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 You, or otherwise known as you are what you ate, ate. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> Very much so. Okay. Okay, so uh, we talked the INR. One is the average. Most new patients, when I had my machine before the FDA took it back, because they didn't want people diagnosing in the room, mm. uh, we're 0.7 to 0.9, so that means really thick. And so heart attack and stroke and cancer run in my family. 1.0 was, was average, you said? average for Americans. So that's not great, actually, because no, no. we're assuming that most Americans probably are running a little thick. That's so what's your thing. ideal range for a patient? Then? So I'm between 1.6 and 2.2. Okay. So my blood is very thin. And mm -hmm. so whenever I cut myself, it's kind of like that uh, Saturday Night Live thing with Dan Aykroyd when he's Julia Childs. I've cut myself. <laughs> the blood going everywhere. And the blood's coming out. Yeah. <laughs> so basically, I really have to put pressure on. Mm -hmm. But basically, I don't plan on going down the route that my family does. So I have no fibromyalgia. Mm -hmm. I have great circulation, great recovery time. And so all the things that blood does, it does really well in my body. Mm -hmm. And so I try to get my patients to, you know, make sure they get enough great fatty acids to eat an anti-inflammatory diet, to mm -hmm. keep their infections down, to keep their inflammation down, to make sure they get enough minerals. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and we'll talk about this one. We'll just jump right into the, the diet part is that basically I, my five favorite foods are great oils. So olive oil, coconut oil, goat butter, and any oil that looks like olive oil, avocado and macadamia in it. Mm. Everybody needs really good oils in their diet. Wait, what about Canadian oil, otherwise known as canola oil? Uh, 
It's polyunsaturate, and I love saying this word. It has uric acid in it, which is a 17-chain carbon fat that has a trans fatty acid in it. Mm. So it's actually a natural trans fat that gets stuck in your cell membrane and really wreaks havoc on your ability to keep bad stuff out and let good stuff in. So no fly on the canola oil. Mm -mm. No, PUFAs, polyunsaturated mm. fatty acids, inflammation nightmare. So you just take your most popular mm. ones in the grocery store, soy, corn, canola, um, canola sunflower, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. And unfortunately, most of the foods in the prepared food aisle at Whole Foods are canola. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it's cheap. I talked yeah. to their nutritionist about that, and she said it's never been proven. And, it's, and I said, but olive oil is obviously much better. It's the mm -hmm. basis for the Mediterranean diet, and that's mm -hmm. why they do so well with it. Mm -hmm. She goes, no, our research says, and our research says basically I want to buy it for the cheapest and make the yeah. most money on it. And so it's, it's, it's a scale yeah. product, so yeah. they have yeah. to make compromises to some degree, unfortunately. Yeah. 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 That bums me out. It For me, that's a microwave argument. It's mm -hmm. like we have all these people are saying, oh, microwaves are so convenient. You can heat your food so much more quickly. Okay, first of all, heating food quickly is not a goal of mine. I, I want to heat food in the way that it's going to respect the mm -hmm. nature of the food and give me the most nutrition out of it. So I don't give a crap about how fast I heat it. Yep. All I have to do is think slightly more ahead. If it's going to take 12 minutes instead of six minutes to heat mm -hmm. something, yeah. I'll just put it in 12 minutes before I want to eat it instead of six. This yeah. is not rocket science. It's just forward thinking. So, so as it relates to forward thinking, actually, that's on my foods to never eat. And one of them is microwave, microwave foods. Yeah. Yeah. Never. Excellent. Never. So I just don't see the art. But for me, it's like there are, there are people who debate on both sides. It's, it's mostly you just know? a convenience thing. It is a convenience thing. You've been taught that it was more convenient to yeah. own and purchase a microwave and it'll make your life so much more more efficient if you own it. So you you signed up. You you were like, I want more efficient life. I'll pay the $600 for this yep. extra appliance, even though I already own an appliance that does the same thing. Yep. I'll pay for a duplicate appliance. But from my perspective, like I've gotten in this argument with people who are, oh, but there's a science that shows it's okay. No, there's experts on both sides who are credible, I would say, who could say, who could make an argument that arg that microwave food is perfectly healthy and those that that argue that it's completely just denatures the protein, destroys the food. For me, I don't actually care about any of that argument because the fact that there are credible experts on the side who say that it will ruin my food or make food less digestible or less potent is enough for me to say, because of the fact that I already own an appliance that does the same thing, I can apply Occam's razor and just mm -hmm. say, simplest explanation is the best and the one that works for me. I don't need to own a microwave. I don't need to examine the minutia or sit and waste my time and energy mm -hmm. discerning this argument. And that's the same argument you were giving the woman at Whole Foods in the sounds of it. Like we already know olive oil comes from nature mm -hmm. and we, it's got a proven track record. Why are you trying, like canola oil is a hybridized crop. Yeah, yeah. It was created by the nation of Canada out of rapeseed mm -hmm. when they found that rapeseed actually killed rats in studies. And they said, well, we can't bring this to market. We need an export. We need money. We've got tons of rapeseed everywhere in mm -hmm. Canada. Also conveniently acknowledging the fact that rapeseed isn't the most marketable name for an oil in the universe. So they were like, Let's spend $70 million hybridizing crops to take this acid out of rapeseed, and then it's a new thing. So we're going to give it a new name. How about Canadian oil, canola oil? Yeah, Boom, yeah. there you go. There's your yeah. product. There's no such thing as a canola plant, in case you didn't know. So now we have canola oil, this hybridized product that is missing these acids. And if my understanding is correct, the irony is that later they found out in human trials that that acid didn't kill humans. So, they could have, so now rapeseed is a thing you could consume also. I'm not arguing it's good for you, but it's a thing that's not going to kill you, at least not immediately. Anyway. It's a long, painful, inflammatory process. There you go. Yeah. Slow death or fast death. Mm -hmm. So my point being is 
why do we need to even have a debate about olive oil versus canola oil? One of my most fundamental rules is if it can't be picked, peeled, caught, or skinned, don't eat it. If you can't find it in a forest, don't eat it. Yeah. Well, I don't see any canola plants in a forest, so I'll take the olive oil. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, definitely. Simple. Simple. Okay. Sorry, soapbox. That's okay. I'm talking <laughs> hand down. <laughs> so uh, rainbow diet. Colors. All colors do different things in the body. So basically, I just eat the widest variety of colors. And if I do fruit, it's always low glycemic. So I try to get people to eat berries and kiwi. And, you know, that's pretty much it. I so not a lot of apples, not a lot of peaches, pears, that kind of stuff. Is that what you mean? Unless, I'm, unless I'm an athlete. Okay. Because I have this little song. It goes, fruit makes fat, flour makes fat, sugar makes fat. Well, I don't want to be fat. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you. And so uh, when fruit comes into farmer's market, I'll eat it. I'll eat it like a piece a day. Mm -hmm. And I, it felt good. But at that time of year, this is eating with the seasons and Chinese medicine. Mm. You're much more active. And so then once the fruit disappears from the Western Slope, I quit eating it normally. So one year, I kept getting a piece a day from vitamin cottage. And so I'm sitting there eating this pear in November. It's really delicious. And Ian looks at me and she goes, you know that song you sing? And I said, oh, yeah, fruit makes fat, flour makes fat, sugar makes fat. I, I don't want to be fat. fat. That uh, she says, do you think it doesn't apply to you? And I'm like, oh, I was, I was getting a little rotund. So I, I took it over to my compost container and I put the pear in there. And that was the end of the fruit till it showed up at farmer's market. Mm-hmm. Isn't loving relationship wonderful? Because it's yes. about support and challenge. Yes, indeed. And <laughs> honesty. Yes. <laughs> yes. So we talked about the sprouted dehydrated nuts and seeds. Fermented foods are an important part of my diet. So I'll eat something fermented once or twice a day, whether it's kimchi, sauerkraut, umeboshi paste, goat cheese, sheep cheese. You miso? Know. Miso. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Do you do kefir? Uh, I don't do kefir. My dogs do. They okay. like kefir. Yeah. Cow kefir or goat kefir? Uh, I don't do any cow dairy. So that's in my never eat foods. Mm -hmm. So I don't do anything cow. I switch all my patients over to, because it doesn't have casein. So goat, sheep, and water buffalo, you know, all their dairy products. So mm -hmm. the butters and the cheeses and the yogurts and all that. Yeah. And the last one is teas, herbs, and spices. Mm -hmm. You know, so I drink my green tea and I've got herb tea. It's got ginger and turmeric in it. And then I spice everything in my kitchen with a wide variety of spices because they're all, uh, they stimulate different uh, taste buds different olfactory nerves, but also they have different energetics. Some are warming, some are cooling. Okay. And so I like a savory spice shop. Mm -hmm. You've got a lot of nice blends, but you can also try the different herbs and spices there. They've got their little sample testers. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they're still opening them up after COVID, but you know. I've been in there a couple of times since COVID. Yeah, yeah, they're, yeah. they're around. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. So uh, the top three, five food. Oh, so the thing with the foods that are great for everyone, the variety is spice of life cook and eat with the season. So when it shows up at farmer's market, I start eating more raw unless it snows. Because mm -hmm. when it's really cold, my spleen gets chill and raw food doesn't work in my body as well. And then as we go through the summer, I eat more raw, more raw, mm. stir fry, you know, quick food, you know, something grilled. But then as we get into the fall and it gets cooler, when it doesn't show up at farmer's market, I'll still get it at alfalfas or whatever, but I'll only eat a salad on a warm day. So you're respecting not only the seasonality of ingredients that are available, yeah, but yeah. also the type of preparation of yeah, food that yeah, you consume. Yeah, yeah. Because in Chinese medicine, the stomach's thought of as kind of a cauldron, right? Yeah. yeah. But in hot weather, that cauldron's already got more heat around it. Yeah. And so it, it actually, the, the spleen chi gets stronger. Mm -hmm. And so you can actually digest raw food. Mm. But when it gets cool outside, the spleen gets cooler and you need warmer food. So right. I remember one time in uh, January, I uh, had an apple. This is before I had my little song. Yeah. And uh, 
I, it was 20 below zero. It was January, and I bit into it, and I felt this cold. Like chill. Right, yeah. go right through my body. It took me two weeks to warm my body up. Wow. Even getting back to like soups and stews because it was so mm. cold outside, and mm. the chi doesn't respond to cold very well when it's cold outside. Mm -hmm. And so then when you recommend, we're not only talking about the preparation type, but also the, the spicy content. So more curries, more yeah. richer foods yeah. in yeah. the fall yeah. and winter, right? When it's yeah. cold. Yeah, so I do like, yeah. you know, more Persian foods, more, you know, Thai yeah. food, Indian food. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So curry stews, things like that. Yeah. Okay. And heavier proteins probably go along with that. Yeah. yeah. More, more, maybe more fish in the summer and uh, more, yeah. more heavier meat like buffalo and things like that. Or you kind of rotate your proteins. I, I rotate all my proteins. And so yeah. uh, because of the five element theory, when somebody comes in and they usually eat like uh, chicken and wheat. Okay, so those are the two liver foods. Maybe they're just a little angry and a little grumpy and a little frustrated. And it has to do with the fact that the body uh, is just being overstimulated. That liver is getting overstimulated and making that extra fascial thing possibly, you know. So mm -hmm. maybe it wasn't just medication. Maybe that person liked, you know, some kind of fast food chicken wheat thing. Yep, yeah. yep. Or maybe it was just their, yeah, yeah fixation yeah. on I, I just like um, – my wheat bread and my or my chicken sandwich for lunch yeah, every yeah, day or something yeah, like the chicken yeah, breast, yeah. right? And so yeah. you know, uh, pork and chick, pork and fish are really good for the kidneys. Mm. Lungs, uh, lamb's good for the liver. No, the lung. So we already had the chicken and turkey's also good for the lungs. Mm. And I think buffalo's more of a oh spleen stomach. Yeah, mm. yeah, okay, yeah. And you're okay with pork then? Assuming, of course, all these meats we're assuming are the best possible quality you can get. Right. Local, farm-raised, antibiotic-free, hormone-free. Yeah, so we know. Fed in their natural yeah, state. Um, but Clint Buckner, he runs the yeah. Bogle Lamb Company, Buckner Family Ranch. Mm -hmm. And so we get our beef and our chicken. No, not chicken. Uh, beef, pork, pork, and uh, lamb from him. And he'll do eggs but not chickens, yeah. Yeah, he'll do eggs and not We chickens. get our food from yeah. him as well. Yeah. I'll just go out there with yeah. $600 in cash and a couple coolers yeah. and stock up, go stock home, put it in the freezer, yeah. and that's our... Love it. Love that guy. He's, and then there's the, the Sunrise Ranch. He's the bison guy at Farmer's Market. Yep. And so he'll deliver to you on Saturday when he comes to town. You oh. can just email him an order and he'll just drop it off at your oh. house. So you can go pick it up. If you live in Boulder yeah, or the, Boulder, yeah. the Front Range area. And, you know, for chicken, my favorite is uh, Pine Manor. They only carry it at uh, Lucky's and at Ideal. Mm. You know, Mary's is pretty good, but uh, it doesn't yeah. have the flavor at the Pine Manor. So, mm. you know, you'll find as you go through, there's different vendors that you like mm. and you know, yeah. Different, yeah, different supplies. But I find that I eat all different meats all the time. And I'm always rotating mm. through my body because they have different amino acid complex. They have different nutrients. And so if you just get stuck in a rut, the body, that part's going to get overstimulated, but the body's going to have these other needs that aren't getting better. Yeah, it just revitalizes everything, yeah. right? Yeah. So I read a really interesting book from a, a Czech practitioner colleague of mine recently. His name's Eugene Trufkin, or Yevgeny is the printed name on his book. And it's called The Anti-Factory Farming Guide to Shopping, I believe. And the book is pretty quick read, but really instructive and insightful. It's really small and light. You even keep it in your your man purse or your, mm -hmm. your actual purse. Um, if you go to the store and reference it, use it like a reference, but he decodes the labels. He talks about the problem with labels and things that say, even the problems in organic standards. Yeah. When people say grass fed, what do they actually mean? When they say past, pasture raised for eggs and for chicken, what does that mean mm -hmm. for the record? One of the insights he gave me quickly is that when you, you don't actually want a vegetarian fed chicken, chickens don't eat. What that means is they're feeding them soy and corn. Chickens eat bugs. Yeah, chickens are scavengers. Yeah, that's what they eat. Yeah. So you want you, a vegetarian-fed chicken is not ideal. It means they may have some room to roam, but they're giving them feed. And unfortunately, cage-free frequently means it's still a warehouse filled with fifty thousand hens and one little porch that's twelve by twelve with a door. 
Mm, yeah. And so it's not always everything it's cracked up to be. So you really have to be quite discerning in the labels. Even yeah. one of the more alarming ones was he was talking about how you can get steaks that say 100% grass fed. And I have to say, it's just makes me sad that humans are this duplicitous sometimes. But he said the way around that is, okay, all cows are grass fed for most of their lives because cows eat grass, they die. You can't feed them corn from, from birth, they'll die. But they're supplementing that food with corn and soy pellets with hormones and all kinds of crap if it's an industrial farm. But even relatively healthy farms, they'll still supplement with pellets, but they'll put grass fiber in the pellets. And then they can say, oh, it's 100% grass fed because the cow was always eating grass. And that's just a weaselly way to get around the mm -hmm. fact that they're still using the soy and corn pellets to fatten up the cow before slaughter in the final few months of its life, which is unfortunate. So you, you really have to dig and have a bit of discernment. And I know this can be a bit overwhelming for some people, but yeah. the best solution, honestly, is go buy local, meet your farmer, shake his hand, yeah. see his environment, ask him point blank. Like, hey, man, do you ever feed your – what do you feed your animals? Do you give them antibiotics? And understand to get to know them. Develop a relationship with them. Yeah. This is how you vote with your dollars for the health of the planet to enable regenerative agriculture and yeah. support local farmers who need our support right now, but also support the health of you and your family. By buying, by buying the best quality product you can. And yes, I know not everyone is in a position to afford this. I don't want it to become an economic discussion, but I'll just point out that when you eat really high quality meat, you need less of it yep. and your body will be more sustained. Your body will be more nourished. So also, you don't need to fill it with all these empty calories and two pound burgers and shit like that. Yeah. And also buy the less expensive. So when, you know, economic challenges, you know, when you're going to chiropractic school, you don't have a lot of money. You buy the chicken wings, you buy the chicken back, and then you make mm -hmm. a bone broth out of the bones and you use you it only all. eat the yeah. ground meats. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Cool. And then, so we got to, uh, oh yeah, yin yang five elements. So that's, that's that whole rainbow diet. So rainbow protein, you know, rainbow vegetables. Yeah. And I do sometimes need to eat some rice because my activity level is very strong. So that's the part where it's, I'm mostly paleo, but occasionally mm -hmm. I need to bring a little rice in my, my diet so I can get the calories mm -hmm. so I can function. Mm. So my daughter, Chloe, as you know, was in Japan all last summer and last fall. And one interesting fact she brought to us recently is that apparently there was a study somewhere, which I have not read. She said, indicated that uh, people who live in Asian populations, Asian cultures, they have a biome that more completely extracts yep. the protein and yes. carbs from the rice yes. than Westerners do. Yeah. So when Asian people eat a lot of rice, they're getting different things from it than yeah. we are. And this well, part of it is, you know, genetically, they evolved, they evolved as a local, you know, uh, yeah, food for them. That is their local it, food. Yeah. 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 And so, so for them, I mean, it, it's kind of like wheat. Wheat is like a recent development in the world. But they said maybe in 10,000 years, if it's the good wheat, we'll all be able to eat it. But, right. You know, right. It won't be us. It'll be the there. ancient grain. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Our children's children, 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 children. Yeah. If, they're, yeah. if those, those people exist. If they're still there. Yes. Yeah. And so uh, the three to five foods never to eat. Uh, never GMO, okay. genetically modified organisms. The body hasn't seen this made in a restaurant or uh, in a laboratory somewhere. Mm. Pesticides, poison. For, if a bug won't eat it, I can't eat it. Right. And so the one for the BT corn, actually the, the, the um, gut of the insect literally explodes and they die. <laughs> But they said in the... That's okay for humans, yeah, I swear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so Monsanto, which is now bare, they said that it will be digested by the, our uh, stomach acid and our small intestine. So they looked at the uh, umbilical cord blood, 
92% of all kids born today have BT in their body, in, mm. in their developing body. That's glyphosate. Yeah. yeah right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's astounding when you look into the history of that chemical and how Monsanto had to basically go away because it yeah. was getting sued to death and now it's yeah. bare. And yeah. It's a dark story. Well, see, they, the genetic, they genetically modify it so they can use the uh, glyphosate on there, but they actually put a gene in the corn that causes the gut to explode for the insect. For the insect. Yeah. 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 I mean, and so that you, you know, humans aren't as strong as insects. They haven't been around as long. So I guess it would do the same thing to our belly. So that's one thing I never eat in organic is uh, corn. Yeah. And so I really try to avoid all the major crops. Okay. And so never microwave food. Part of mm -hmm. it is uh, it causes failure to thrive. You can't nuke baby formula because all amino acids exist in an L form and some turn to the D form. Yes. And then it causes failure to thrive, intestinal problems, immunological problems. Mm. And, and I was at a seminar in Nashville and the only place I found that had vegetables on the third day because everything was cream sauce and, you know, deep fried and whatnot mm. was a Chili's restaurant. Oh. So I went into Chili's. I blessed my food. I did have a feedlot remorse as it relates to the chicken. Um, I had zucchini and some other squash and carrot, and I ordered some brown rice. And so the brown rice came out, and I put my hand over it, and I'm like, did Whoa. you nuke this? Yeah. And they said, yeah, we wanted it to be nice and warm for you. And I said, please take it back and take it off my check because mm -hmm. it feels different. If you know yeah. what real food feels like, yeah, you, you can, can tell something it. that was grown well or not well or not mm -hmm. treated well. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things about when you go to the, the supermarket, never buy bruised produce. Because they did a uh, research on, uh, they traumatized a celery plant, you know, just by wiggling its, uh, its stock. And then after a period of time, they harvested healthy celery and that traumatized stock. The traumatized one had natural pesticides in it. So hmm. if your vegetables aren't treated well, right. they're going to have naturally occurring pesticides. Because the plant has been injured yeah, and yeah. it's bruised. Yeah, it's yeah. just like. And it doesn't want something to eat it, so it's going to make something mm -hmm. not want to eat it. Right, right, right. And overprocessed, you know, like you said, if God made it eat, if it looks like it did in nature, that's what you want, you know, mm -hmm. so eat as little processed food as possible. Yes. So first on my list is no legumes, no soy, no peanut, no chickpeas, no lentils, no beans. And the reason mm -hmm. is, is that they have anti-digestive enzymes, phytoestrogens, which is going to get you in touch with your inner feminine and make you bloat and stagnate. Uh, they they uh, thicken the blood. They also cause hypercoagulation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thickening of blood and hypercoagulation not the same thing. Uh, well, thickening of blood and hypercoagulation—they're connected, yeah, right? Yeah, but they're connected. Yeah, yeah, okay. So they are the same thing. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, and part of that is because of the high lectin content of beans, correct? Uh, it's the way the the lectin, but the protein and the uh, carbohydrate. They basically, if you were a, a bean, what would you want to do to make so that if somebody comes along and they're eating you for mm -hmm. an ongoing basis to, to right, you want to in interrupt their digestion. You want to make them impotent. Yeah. You want to make them slow fat and round because of the hypothyroid. You want to give them some uh, thick blood. And then you also want to give them uh, uh, osteoporosis. Kill them off slowly. Yeah, yeah. So this is the Saladino argument. I mean, he's saying like animals have defense mechanisms built in. They have teeth and claws. Yeah. So when you try to hunt or fast or they, they run fast. If you yeah. try to kill a deer, it'll run away from you unless you're really good. Yeah. Try to kill something with teeth and claws, you've got to deal with that defense yeah. mechanism. Plants are stuck in the ground. So their defense mechanism is chemical. Yeah. But, and I think that's a very simplistic way to look at things. I mean, I also think that everything's here for a reason. And, and when you develop a relationship with plants and all living things, then you understand that consumption is part of life. This is my biggest problem with the vegetarian argument is people say, oh, we're humans, we're thinking, we should be able to discern and not kill living things. Well, first of all, did you not realize that plants are alive? Yeah, like to me, yeah. you kill 
Yeah. You kill a cow, you kill a plant, you've killed a living being. Yeah. Whether or not it's conscious is really irrelevant to the discussion. Like, does it have life mm-hmm. force? It does have life force. Of course it yeah. does. Yeah. That's why you want to eat it. That's why you want to eat it. That's yeah. being you alive is an yeah. act of consumption. Yeah. Unless you're a breatharian, you have to consume things, mm-hmm. other living yeah. things to stay alive. Yeah. So anyway. Yep. Yeah. So those are, that's your top five list. Oh, so the legumes. Second legumes, is gluten. Yes. Yeah, gluten. All oh, forms wait. of gluten. I'm sorry. Can we oh. rewind? Oh. What about what about slow cooking of beans? What if you put them in slow cooker for two days and you no. bake, cook out all those I, lectins? And I've, I've done the whole thing. So uh, the new thing is uh, you want to soak them for three days and rinse them off every 24 hours. Yeah. And then you put Talk seaweed in there. Ahead. and you Yeah, you think ahead. Put <laughs> seaweed in there. You put some acid in there, whether it's a vinegar or whatever, some salt, and you right. pressure cook it. Right. Still, joint pain, bloating, inflammation, brain fog, gastric spasm, and, and every time. It's the mm. best I've found so far, mm-hmm. but I still get an inflammatory response, which means more hypercoagulation, right. uh, bloating, weight gain, yeah, all those bad things. So even though you've probably reduced the lectin content by whatever, some massive amount, yeah. it's still, it's still enough the residual to, enough is enough to yeah, mess to, up you. Yeah, to mess yeah. me up. And yeah. my wife too. Right. Yeah. right. I wouldn't feed it to my dogs. Interesting. They, they don't eat beans. <laughs> so second is gluten, all gluten in mm. every form. Basically, it turns into glada opiate, which is like heroin, but yes. it does inflame the lining of the intestine and the immune system sees the gliadin protein and it attacks the lining of the colon with inflammatory enzymes. So that's hormone dysregulation because you think you're under attack, but also you get leaky gut syndrome. When you consume gluten and you, so you get a big old piece of toast and you slather it with cow butter on there, mm-hmm. you get a double addictive, well, you get the lactate, lactate. So you just gave me my, that's my third food is cow ah, dairy. All right. Okay. So it's, it's the perfect heroin meal. You get caseo opiate <laughs> yes. and gliato opiate. Yes. And so then you're going to get this heroin high and then you're going to crash, but you've so toasted your immune system and you're going to be bloaty, gassy, gain weight and, and all these other But it's so things. addictive because you just want more because it tastes exactly. so good. Yeah. Because it's yeah. heroin. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Throw a little chocolate bar at the end with the ethylalanine in it, and you get the ultimate uh, stimulation of your heroin receptors in your brain. Otherwise known also as a brownie fudge sundae, right? Yeah, that's all those go. things. Add some sugar on top of it yeah. a, a lot. Yeah. Well, that's my next one, sugar. Oh. The, the food to avoid is you don't want to eat sugar because sugar it disrupts your body. It has no nutrients. It's high-calorie malnutrition, mm-hmm. but it's usually in something else that you don't want to eat, that it contains wheat and cow dairy and some kind of dessert or candy bar or something like right, that. Right, right, right. And then artificial sweeteners and preservatives. Mm. You know, uh, aspartamine, um, basically it opens up the uh, NutraSweet. It opens up the calcium channel uh, in the brain. You flood calcium in, which is highly managed in the brain. And what the euphoria you experience is the death of your brain cells. Wow. That's not an acceptable trade-off to me. Right. So maybe if uh, number 45 is going to have his little uh, wheat cow dairy uh, commercial beef sandwich with some french fries with toxic oil and he's going to drink a diet soda and destroy more brain cells and make Mm -hmm. him moody and irritable this is not a person i want running my country (laughs) but that's my personal opinion it doesn't reflect Mm -hmm. anything upon colby or his other choices or anything like that right fair (laughs) enough cool scott thank you so much for taking time to come and answer all my questions and correct some of my terminology and enlighten me on your, your practice, some of which I knew about and much of which I didn't. And um, it's been a true pleasure. We've got much more to talk about. So I think that we're going to arrange a chapter two. Scott story 2.0. Yes. <laughs> and um, we'll go from there. So thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. Listen up space monkeys. A few final notes and disclaimers. I'm not a doctor or a lawyer. I don't play one on the internet. 
So do not misconstrue any advice given on this podcast as doctorly or lawyerly advice. Also, during our show, at times, my guests and I will express our opinions. These opinions do not necessarily represent those of Fast Talk Labs, of Chris Case, Trevor Connor, Jenna Martin, or anyone else associated with Fast Talk Labs. If you want to reach out and tell me something, good, bad, or otherwise, feel free to email me at cyclinginalignment at fasttalklabs.com. Thanks for listening. Much gratitude. <laughs>